0: You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 38. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast
1: app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at CodingBlox or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. Nobody even knows what's. Uh, do you know what that's. In yeah, position? I do. I do. I do. <laughs> yeah. Let's finish the introduction, <laughs> then we'll get into it. Yeah. And with that, uh, welcome to Coding Blocks. I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. And today, for every time we say um, we'll be giving away a dollar. Wait. Whoa. Okay. Maybe not. But no. But we're really going to try and stop doing that. Yeah.
0: So so since uh, you brought up www, <laughs> let's get into. Uh, if you're not already. <laughs> We've been having a lot of like fun conversations over at uh, codingblocks.slack.com. So uh, you hit us up on Twitter. You could, you know, send us a DM or you can email us at comments at uh, codingblocks.net or you could hit us up on discuss. Right now, the, it's by invitation. So what I mean is hit us up on one of those sources and uh, we will add you to the, to the team. But at some point, we will automate that to where uh, it'll just be a click of a button. But
1: Here was the thing about the DM, and this is what I found out on Twitter. Twitter won't let you DM somebody that's not following you as well. And we've gotten several people that literally have been like, they will have just followed us, and so we haven't followed them. And they're like, hey, I can't DM you. So right. if, if you can't direct message us because we're not following you, it's not because we're trying to be rude. We just, we're terrible at social. So, you know find one of the other ways definitely get it back to us and even if you want to come drop a note on on the uh what are they called the comments down at the bottom of our show notes page yeah discuss you can do that and if you want to delete it afterwards so that your email's not hanging out on the interwebs for people to try and scrape you can do that too so yeah i mean that's totally your call
0: yeah just just
1: find a way but comments at codingblocks.net is a good way to do it and we've had some great conversations over there guys uh, a ton of really good conversations. People are talking amongst themselves and with us, and it's a lot of fun. We,
2: we've got like 25 people in there right now, and, it, and it's it's really turned out to be pretty awesome. Yeah, I didn't think anyone's going to join, but it's it's been really good and really funny, and I always learn something. That someone's always saying, have you looked at this? And uh, I haven't. So it, it's been really great. Yeah,
1: I mean, not just the entertainment factor, but again, people are sharing tools. Uh, Stefan Kurt, I had a really great conversation with him the other day. He's attending some Microsoft conferences currently right now, and he's, like, shared a ton of useful information. So, you know, definitely go up there and check it out. You'll learn something. You'll meet some new people. It's a lot of fun. So, and, you know, we'll get we'll get into some more stuff here in a second, but I guess we should go with the flow <laughs> of our show notes. Well,
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I brought that up because of, um, you know, you brought up the WWW thing. But uh, actually, after while you were speaking, I realized. Oh, yeah, that actually wasn't brought up on a Stitcher review. On yeah, on on the Slack channel, that was brought up as a Stitcher review comment. So point is, join us on Slack. We're having a lot of fun conversations over there, and uh, you know, it's just a place for like-minded developers. You know, we can all uh, you know chit chat about random topics, and there've been like some cool little one liner like puzzles that we've thrown out there too. Um, that. Uh, you know, they have been little, little good brain teasers. So,
1: fun times. Yeah, and yeah. so the next part is our iTunes and Stitcher reviews. So, we've gotten one new review on iTunes. I think, Outlaw, you dug this one up, right? Yeah, this one was from Australia, and it was awesome from uh, J.K.
0: Cooper, too. So, thank you. We've got uh, you know some new reviews on Stitcher from the C-Sharpest, uh, Jupkins, and... I'm going to mess up your name, Nick uh, Stewart. Yeah, I think yeah. It's Stewart. Okay, okay. Well, at least Alan agrees with me, so it can't be totally wrong. And Nick was the one that brought up the www. <laughs> I guess I'm. I know I'm. I'm probably pretty bad about
1: saying www or www. That's usually what I say. <laughs> I, 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 just I do it that it one too.
0: But you know, I was actually thinking about this because when he when he made this comment, basically he was joking around, or well, maybe he was serious. About uh, us not pronouncing WWW, mm-hmm. but instead saying like either WWW or WWW. But, like, well, for one, I mean, come on, it's the year 2016. Nobody's got time for all that. Like, really? <laughs> and then, number two, like, the thing I was thinking about the other day is like, okay, I kind of feel like there was some guy that invented the alphabet, and this was his, like, you know, insert expletive here to the world because he was like, you know what? I got A, B, C. I'm tired of all these single syllable letters. I want some letter with with some strength about it, you know? You know what I'm saying? And so that's what like W was. It takes it, there are more syllables and letters in W One to letter. say to say it
1: than than in the actual letter itself. That's crazy. I think it might have been Master P he's like, uh <laughs> <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, that's that's good, pretty good.
3: Right? You know, best impression.
0: That's up there with the Wookiee impression.
1: And for all of you who oh. haven't been around long enough, you just have to go look that one up. Uh, so, uh, and I did want to bring up. So we talked about our Slack channel a second ago, and and again, we're, we're excited about it. It's fun. But I did have a great conversation with with Stefan the other day, and. He lives in Austria, and so that's really cool. And we got to chatting about, you know, coding in general, and he shared a really cool story with how he got started into programming. It was all based out of wanting to do something really well in a video game, and he was having to keep track of how he was allocating resources and that stuff to go over and take over planets. And it's that kind of stuff that drives a lot of great programmers, right? Some people are motivated by money and they're like, hey, I want to get into computer science because I hear you make a lot of money, right? Those people usually don't last because, as you know, if you're listening to this podcast, if you've been in programming for a while, you know it's like lifelong dedication to learning, right? Like, it really is. And if you stop learning, then chances are you're working in a job that's that's getting stale. And if anything ever happens to it, you're going to have a hard time adjusting. Um, so... That, that was just kind of interesting. So what I'd like you to do is, if you guys don't mind, if you get a second, you know, go up to this particular episode and leave share your story about, you know, what turned you on programming. Was it, you know, I don't know, you were doing a math problem and, oh man, I could make something that could totally do my homework for me, which is kind of what I ended up doing. Yeah. Or, you know, was it a video game or was it? I know what, video what games you? are a big one. They're huge,
2: right? Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely
0: do... have friends like that was the thing, especially back in the land party days. Yep. Well, you go back to console party days, but you know, yeah, the <laughs> land party days, Joe knows what I'm talking about, uh, but, uh, you know,
3: when
0: a lot of friends got started, that, that was their thing was, you know, just trying to like either fix a problem in a game or trying to understand like how to make it work, you know, it definitely reading the code, you know, uh, was how, how they got started and, and, you know, fixing the problems, you know, to make it so that they could keep playing this fun game. Right.
3: Yep. Like I mean levels.
0: Yeah, there's there's and nowadays tons of it's stuff. like you know, nowadays kids for you know this generation of kids, you know, if they want to create a Minecraft mod, like that's a thing, right? right.
1: Some kids learn Java to be able to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, right? exactly. So,
0: exactly. There are there are entire classes and courses and books about like just just around Minecraft alone.
1: Yeah, so totally. If if you guys want to share, you know, an interesting story, bring it up there and and post it on the site and also, you know, come join us on Slack and, and let's have a cool conversation. So Uh, That
2: pretty much covers that part. Well, speaking of comments, uh, we have a riddle for you from uh, episode 37. Well, I don't know that we have it. There was a riddle. That's right. Uh, (laughs) We can't take credit for it. We'll share it. Yes, so uh, let us know if you figure out what the answer is because uh, it's been three days and uh, he hasn't posted an answer. So uh, the riddle is another survey, another contest, the riddler, another poem, no. But how about a riddle? I'm both hot and cool at the same time. What am I? Did you? And did you say
0: uh, who who the author of that riddle was? Yes, tired of the carp. Yes, I think there was a typo there. I don't know yeah. if you can find it. I wasn't sure if that was a
2: slam or if he was just uh, tired <laughs> of fish. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah i i uh, i th- i've heard, I know
0: I've heard this riddle before, but I can't remember it. Uh, yeah,
1: this is gonna drive me yeah, crazy. Yeah, we're now. we're not gonna try yeah. to solve it now. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. Um but going back to the Slack channel for a minute, right? There was um you know, actually this time I'm prepared with a survey, right? <laughs> Very nice. Because there were some interesting conversations on there, like um, you know, apparently someone's sensitive about their age, right? <laughs> I don't I don't I don't know who, but apparently somebody. <laughs> and uh you know, one of the interesting conversations that came up there. I don't even remember who somebody somebody posted this video, and I want to say it was uh uh Andy that posted this video of people jumping a puddle.
1: Oh, right, no. right.
0: Now I want to post this this video on uh, you know in our show notes here because I want you to take a look at this because at the end. One person just decides, you know, everyone else is walking around the puddle or jumping over the puddle. But this one person
1: is just like, you know what? I'm going for it. I'm no, walking. Hold on. Hold on. They weren't walking around the puddle. They were actually having to climb through mud and trees to no, get around the they puddle. They were
0: not. You were totally exaggerating. <laughs> they were, they were, it, 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 wasn't exactly the easiest thing to walk around because of the way the path, you know, uh, cause there was a handrail around the path. But, uh, Yeah, so it was a little bit of an effort. A little bit. But, you know, someone, uh, maybe Alan, (laughs) said that the last person who just straight up walked right
1: through this puddle did the smart thing. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? What? It wasn't even an inch of water. Like, your soles on your flip-flops would have been deeper. (laughs) In that puddle was no way man
0: you gotta walk you got if there's if if you can walk around it or walk over it then you walk
1: around it or over it man you don't walk through a puddle yeah but these people weren't just walking around it wasn't like they could just you know strafe to the side of it they well, were literally climbing trees and
2: oh
0: by <laughs> the way like everyone in there
1: like they kind of looked you know the dress
0: of everyone in the video it wasn't like they were like super casual right You know, they they were wearing you know, nice clothes. Like it looked like it looked like they were probably going to work or someplace, you know.
1: I think what we're getting at here is Outlaw totally would have spent half an hour trying to figure out how to get around this puddle.
0: I just thought it was crazy (laughs) that you said that the
1: smart guy, the only one who was
0: smart, was the one that walked through it. I'm like, that can't possibly be nobody would agree with that statement, right? I I think everybody We're gonna find out. We're going to yeah. find out, because this is science, <laughs> and in the name of science, we're going to we're gonna do this survey. Awesome. So, it was either that,
1: yeah. or I do have a backup survey, if you want to hear it. No, let's keep the other one for the next one. I think that's a good
2: survey. All right. So, yeah, so go to uh, episodes uh, slash episode 38, watch the video, and vote in the poll. Who yeah,
0: does? yeah. We definitely need to, like, find this out for science purposes. And then, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know, Joe... If you've noticed this, but I think um this celebrity has gotten to Alan's head here because uh, for all you dear listeners that don't already know, Alan was recently interviewed he was a, a on another podcast here uh the m s dev show.
1: What do you gotta say for yourself, Mr. Celebrity? I wasn't getting any romance here at home, so
2: <laughs> Alan was stepping out. I had to step out wow. out,
1: Wow. And then you guys started showing me love again, so that's, I'm back. That's harsh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. no, but we mentioned was... MS Dev Show before. Uh, it's a great show, and it's a great episode. Um, so, yeah, you guys should definitely check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So,
1: you know, hopefully, you know, you guys go over there learn some stuff. They have lots of episodes about tools and stuff. And this particular episode was about uh, our tools. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow that that just but, sounded
1: that was not well a really good or or even planned interesting yeah so no, they the, talk about tools and stuff our tool and, episode <laughs> and this time they talk about our tools right yeah no, okay so that's great <laughs> yeah, that's the way to sell it go check out that episode we we'll have a link in the show notes. <laughs> Oh, I would say maybe instead of saying they talk about, uh, instead of saying that they talk about tools and stuff, maybe say they talk about a lot of Microsoft technologies. Well, all kinds of technologies, just not, not just Microsoft. They actually talk not about just, but of, a lot of them, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, there, there is a focus. And if you're into Azure and that kind of thing, they definitely, they have like an Azure tip of the week. So it's, it's an excellent show. Uh, great guys over there. Always excellent sound quality as well, which is for me, uh, like a big deal. Like I can't listen to a podcast with bad sound quality. So, you know, and uh, don't
2: don't say the answer. But what question did they ask you? They
1: asked me, "Would I rather, <clears throat> would I rather give up celebrating my birthday or celebrating the winter holidays?"
2: All right, don't answer. You got you got to go over there and listen to the show to find out Alan's answer. That's right. <laughs> nice, nice. All right.
3: All right,
0: All right, so
2: oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was just saying uh, we were done with the news, so want to tell you uh, what we're going to be talking about this episode. And uh, basically, the deal is that we found a great summary slash book that attempts to cover the entire spectrum of everything you need to know about being a programmer. And it um, it's got kind of um, sections on like harder skills, like technical stuff, debugging stuff like that, as well as like people managerial type skills. And uh, we've all read it, and so uh, we're going to give it a go. It's divided into three sections. Uh, the first one is uh, geared towards beginners, but really, uh, you know, it's it's useful for developers of all uh, experience levels. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited. I said, oh, like three times in there. I'm going to be broke by the end of this episode. Or <laughs> you're going to be a poor man. Yeah, I think he owes like 50 bucks.
1: So before we get started in this, like when we first talked about this particular topic, I, I, I have to admit, like I was not looking forward to it because if, I don't know, just sometimes when you read things about programming, you know, what it takes, It's it, they can come off as really boring, but this was a pretty good read. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not a terribly long essay, but it's got some good content in it and, you know, each section is, is bite size. It's easily digestible. So, yeah, it was was a good little fun read. So
2: Yeah, and it's 60 pages total. It was published in 2002. And uh, the first section, the beginner section, is roughly like 17 pages. You know, there's some um, contents and some indexes and appendixes that make it so it's not actually that many pages. But it's a really quick read. And you can actually get it on your Kindle from Amazon uh, as well. It's uh, actually got a book as well. It's it's really cheap. I think it's like $1.99. We'll have a link to that. Now, here's the crazy thing is that uh –
0: You know, go back to that episode. I want to say it was episode three. Uh, We still don't understand open source licensing, right? Does that sound right? Uh, I'll verify that in a moment. But five? What? It was five? I believe it was five. Oh well, I don't know our. I don't understand our episode numbering either. (laughs) But uh, this book was actually an has a you know a GNU free documentation license on it. Like I thought that was awesome and interesting that it was. You know and it's clearly stated right there in the appendix. Like, here's the so what can you do it. with that? Oh, it, it goes over all kinds of uh interesting details about like you know, you can use this for commercial purposes, and as long as you pr- include the license, uh, you can there's verbatim copying in it. Like, I'm no lawyer, so I don't know, yep. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was interesting that. <laughs> The book, like literally, one of the appendixes is here's the license to the book.
2: Yeah, I think that basically the deal is you can take this content and do other stuff with it as long as you kind of maintain that license, so that other people can do the same, and so the information just kind of propagates and, um, the- you know, theoretically lives lives along and gets updated as needed, which is really cool.
1: Yep, and I and I will say this: this thing was written several years ago, and honestly, I didn't read anything that I would really dispute in it. So. I think there was there was a lot of interesting things. There's probably things that we'll each feel more passionately about than, than some of the other topics, but I think it's worth uh, starting. Let's dive into this thing.
2: Well, you know, um, I should mention that um, because it was written in 2002, um, you know, that was pre-cloud. It was also pre-Git. So they are missing the section on how to revert merges, which would be <laughs> very important for any sort of programmer coming of age now. Yeah. It's, it's difficult and confusing.
1: You just get cloned to a new directory. I don't know that you know, that's taught anywhere. <laughs> Re- revert your merge? Like a merge gone
0: bad? Yeah. Yep. It's never just, happened. Just reset. <laughs> get reset hard head.
2: All right. That's so let's do this request. thing. What? Pull request. That's why we pull request. Yep. <laughs> All right. So the the first kind of part of the first section we're talking about for beginners here is personal skills and uh at the the top of this we've got learning to debug.
1: Yeah, and one of the I highlighted this in this particular quote in it is awesome to me. A programmer that cannot debug effectively is blind. And that's that that about sums it up right there. I mean
0: Yeah, and and I should also mention too like I don't want to there's a lot of these chapters. So, yeah, I kind of I, I don't want to like go too deep in it, any one of them um, only because we'll never get through all of them. But yeah, yeah, that was a great, uh, a great quote though.
2: Yeah. And um, one thing uh, I, I think is kind of interesting and they kind of, they kind of hint at it is you're going to be spending so much more time debugging than doing anything else. Like you are going to be clicking that F10 button of the step through or looking at, you know, logs or print lines. You're going to spend so much more time doing that than you are going to be typing new code. It's not even funny, so debugging is very important
0: yeah so so yeah, I totally agree. I wasn't necessarily crazy about the the methods that were mentioned because basically you know this section gets into you know in order to to learn to debug you, you need to get visibility into how, like how the program works right like if you if you just started a brand new job right and and they're like, hey, here's a ticket you know go fix this ticket. Right, like the first thing you gotta do is start stepping through to see like, well, how does it how does it before I even look in the code, maybe like see like okay, what steps does it take to reproduce this problem? And then, okay, now that I saw the the you know it its running state and how that worked, like where are those actions at? And let me start driving into this thing to see like, okay, well, where is this part executing and how does this happen? So, you know, you gotta gain visibility into it. And they mentioned there were three um, that that were mentioned for you know ways of of getting into that, and they were categorized as using a debugging tool, print lining, and logging, and I, I guess I guess especially the print lining one just didn't sit well with me. I mean, I guess it's you know sometimes it's been you gotta a few do it.
1: years ago though too. Mm-hmm. I mean if you think about Oh, yeah. That. Yeah,
0: totally good. Great point. Great point. I mean, because back it's like then, 13 years old.
1: Right, yeah. Back then, that's kind of what you did. Back then. Yeah, I mean, 13 years is a long time in terms of programming. I mean, look at how far things have come even in five. Yep. Uh, were there any good JavaScript debugging tools five years ago?
2: Well, well... Five, yeah. I would say the f- uh, fire, Firebug. I firebug get, was guess, pretty close. Yeah. I guess
1: what, didn't, what I
0: didn't like the most about it wasn't that the author wasn't correct it's just that like i cringe every time you're in an environment like that right Right.
2: every time you're working in javascript just tell me that you don't still do console.logs and throw some extra information because that's not logging because you delete it before you uh check it in you know it happens
0: console.log would totally be an example of printlining yep right like anytime you're writing out to you know a standard out right that that would be printlining but I can beat that though, because it wasn't so long. Like it's it's been a few years for me since I've last used Xcode, but I can totally remember a time in when using Xcode, where if you wanted to debug the value of a variable, you had to output the value somewhere, whether that be to a log file or to the console. And that's why, like, when I read that, I was like,
2: I just kind of cringed inside because yeah. I'm like, oh, that's horrible. You know, debugging tools are great for static languages, or um, I guess not necessarily static, but uh, just compiled languages. And if you're working in something like Ruby or Python or something, you know, the, the debugging tools there are really, uh, really rough. You know, it's just not the same. So, you know, sometimes print lining and logging are, you know, your main options. But whenever I see printlining, I know that there's a failure in testing. Because <laughs> what you're doing is basically validating, you know, that certain areas of the code work or have the expected... Um, input so you know what that means is that code isn't tested and you're not really confident that it's working and you know know, that's valid it happens but it's just something to think about
1: well they also said though sometimes you're using like a third party library where you can't step through their code so you don't have a ton of other options then you're back into either logging or print lining right print lining is usually more if you're trying to step through the problem whereas your logging is you know you've got a more long term solution in place typically if you're doing logging type things. So
0: now uh, I will expand on Joe's example though, for the uh, print lining or the logging where, you know, you mentioned just spitting out a value I've actually done in the past where like just outputting, like I am entering or leaving a method too, because I don't, I I know that the method's good and I'm trusting the method, but sometimes it's just helpful to see, like, you know, make sure the flow, what the call stack flow, like what's happening. So, You know, Mm -hmm. in lieu of a call stack from an exception, I'm creating a call stack at like runtime just to see like how it's going through. So, I mean, it's been horribly gross and, you know,
1: usually more verbose than I ever wanted. So now here's one thing that was kind of interesting in this entire chapter. Like this was one of the longer sections, if I remember right. But one of the things I said is you have to learn to poke at the code and make it jump. You have to learn to experiment on it and understand that nothing you temporarily do to it will make it worse. If you feel this fear, seek out a mentor. All right. I do have – I take a little bit of issue with that. Saying that nothing you do temporarily to it can make it worse is not necessarily true. Right? Like if you have some sort of transactional system and you jack something up that is a credit card type processing type thing and you – Well, first off, you're not debugging in production, though. It doesn't say. It doesn't make that distinction. But but I'm just saying, like saying that temporarily changing code doesn't jack something up – This this isn't talking about environments. If you are trying to live change something like you know Ruby or a scripted language in a production environment, what you do could have really bad implications. Well, okay, but we're
0: talking about debug here, and it
1: sounds like you're talking about like, oh, I've I've you telling me you've never cowboy debugged in production?
0: (laughs) Really? I've definitely done it. Oh yeah, definitely. I've never. Well, I guess. You know, you know how, um, not, not detailed. That's not the word I'm looking for, but like, like, oh, no, how cautious. calculated, cautious. how well, calculated let's use that <laughs> word, you know, because like, if I'm making a change, then I'm, I'm trying to be like, absolutely certain, like this isn't going to impact something else, but yeah, you're right. I mean, but that's still like a really bad habit and that's not what this is trying to, this isn't trying to teach you like cowboy it as you put it, that, Totally sounds America, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, the, but the point being is that you know, especially for a new a new developer, you know, you have to get over this fear of like, well, I can't modify this, right? Like, no, you you can't be afraid to break it. You need to get into that code, you need to tear it apart to understand it, and you know, try things and see what happens, and that's that's the the essence of what the author was getting at here.
1: No, I completely agree. I just <laughs> didn't want anybody to think that, you know, making changes to code isn't going to hurt anything. You need to be aware of what situation you're working in, but totally agree. The best programmers out there are the ones that are just like, I'm getting my hands dirty, right? Okay. I'm going to
2: figure out what's going on and you dig in and you dig deep typically. So, Well, speaking of which I have two questions for you guys. Um, number one, uh, <laughs> our friend, John, uh, has a habit of calling this the granny method. You know what I'm talking about? Have you yeah. ever uh, had a problem and you just can't figure out what the heck's going on? And so you just start deleting the sections of the code until something works and then like slowly kind of putting it back together until you figure out what's going on.
1: I believe you just jumped into section two of this first uh, one, which no. is how to debug
2: by splitting up the problem space. Right. Uh, so that's kind of a common way of solving the problem. So it's kind of weird to me that they split it, you know, into a different section. So maybe I'll... Uh, take this license and uh, add that to their list here. But I did have <laughs> one more question for you guys. Have you well, ever I, didn't, I didn't
1: get the first question. Well, he was saying it. Well, I, I guess you didn't ask the question. Go Are you familiar
2: right. with uh, – you guys use the granny method all oh, the time. Oh, have we? All yeah, the time. Sure. yeah, All it, the time.
1: It's an excellent way to do it. I mean, you just you split it up until you find what's breaking it, right? I don't know about if I would say all the time.
0: I kind of view it as like – that's like a – when you last it, resort
1: kind when of when you when you can't find the problem easily, right? That's like because yes. he's literally talking about like deleting
0: or commenting out, you know, yeah. big sections. It,
1: it typically is a last resort. You've been chasing something for an hour and nothing seems to work, and then basically your last resort is okay. Let me just go cut this code. In Unless half and it's see what CSS, happens.
0: and then if it's CSS, <laughs> you've been chasing this problem for eighteen hours. Yeah, and <laughs> you're still not pixel. sure how to make it work across <laughs> all the browsers. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think this I goes
2: eat. hand in hand with print lining. Like if I'm print lining, it's probably a similar situation where I don't know what the heck's going on. And I'm just trying to get more insight. And yeah. So granny method and print lining go hand in hand for me.
1: Yeah, that's true. I would agree with that. But sometimes you'll do the print lining before you even get to the granny method, right? Cause now yeah. you're just trying to track it down. Granny method is I give up. I'm deleting everything a little bit at a time until I find the one piece that's breaking, you know? Yep. So, yeah, Wait, well, so, have question too
2: Yeah, I want to hear this one. Have you guys ever had a situation where say your boss says, Hey, I found a problem in and, and before they even finish the sentence, you know what the problem is and how to fix it.
1: Uh no, because I've never had a problem with my code. No,
2: no. <laughs> I've never had a situation where someone says, um, there's something weird on the say the cart page, and I'm like, Oh no. Out of the way. (laughs) And I I, you know, I kinda wonder it's like how is that I know as soon as someone says there is a problem, how did I know that there was a problem and why didn't I prevent that problem? It's like it's almost like a like a little hidden nugget in your brain. Well I've had
0: I've had situations where it was like I'm trying to think like it wasn't necessarily a bug per se, but it was like like I knew that maybe the layout like this button was to the right of this one and then thought like, you know, hey, it's fine, right? Like, that's the way it was supposed to be and then someone comes along and is like, hey, did you know those buttons over here? And I'm like, okay, yeah, I can move it or whatever. Like, like there have been, I'm obviously that's a contrived example and it's a really silly one but, you know, there have been times like that where something like, you know, I kind of knew but I kind of thought that that was also supposed to the, you know, the way it's supposed to be.
1: Actually, I, I can think of a solid example that solid. I had in, uh, well, maybe not solid, but a real example that I had in the past where I remember saying in my code, like, I have no idea how in the world (laughs) you would ever get to this point. I have tried this 5 million different ways, but I'm putting this little catch down here at the bottom so that if it ever does happen, then, you know, somebody can maybe go back and figure out what happened. And I actually had a guy email me a screenshot of my code one time and was like, how did I even get down here? Right. It, and it's one of those things you're like I totally don't know <laughs> I tried to figure it out but but yeah I mean in Alan's defense I'm gonna go ahead and like
0: let the audience know like that was code he inherited because was. because you know for it, as as I'm listening to this story I'm like wait a minute so he wrote some code. <laughs>
1: And he had no idea how he could possibly get to it. No, this was completely inherited code. But it's one of those things, too, like where you say, you know, somebody comes up to you, you're like, oh, I totally know what you're talking about. And I have no idea how it got there. <laughs> you know? Yep.
0: So, so how to debug by splitting the problem space, right? So, so, you know, one of the things that I liked about this section, too, was that it, it, the way the one of the methods that was described here it kind of reminded me of like a binary search algorithm yes right like you just keep dividing the code until you get to the part where the problem is right like once you've verified a half of it
1: that nope it's not in that half then you go to the next that's totally it you just keep chopping it down and it's it's pretty effective i mean like i said a lot of times that's like a you know last ditch effort but it's it's very effective. You just got to remember to undelete all that code that you deleted while you're in the That's middle. That's really of. important.
2: That <laughs> is really important. Definitely seen situations where like uh, something's not working so you just kind of comment out the section of the code it's not working because it's not it doesn't really apply to what yeah. you're doing and then it gets checked in I've, and uh, then it's like what the heck is happening? I've I've
0: definitely been on the receiving end of that where someone left the uh, commented out code checked in and you're like, "Wait, which <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that's always that's always uh frustrating to be like, "Oh, I don't understand why you commented that out. Does it is that legit? And if it's commented out legitimately because you don't want it there, why didn't you just delete it?"
2: Yeah, and you know that <laughs> happens like we all do things sometimes where we kind of put little shortcuts in the code to help us, you know, get to where we need to get to, but I think um, you know, looking at the stuff after you checked it in like, a, you know, reviewing your own code or having someone else do a code review or a pull request helps but if you've got a large feature with say 100 of modified files then it can really uh you know hide out there and it can be hard to know that that's a problem. So that that is a real danger when you're modifying code in order to work on something.
0: Yeah, that that's one reason why like that granny method um as it was put, you know that's one reason why I kind of reserved that for like a last ditch effort, right? Like like that's the hell mary. I couldn't yep. find it otherwise, so I I'm, I'm going to try this because um there's another section in here, and I don't remember what, but it was talking about, uh, you know, um, actually it was the next section about how to remove the error, and it was talking about like making the smallest amount of change necessary to fix the bug, right? And right. I feel like in that approach, that that um, that granny approach that you're you're referring to, that you're not adhering to that because you're introducing a whole bunch of change by deleting or commenting out things or changing whatever the normal flow of the application is, right? Like you're changing all that. So that's, that's why I don't like that method. But in regards to this, you know, binary search type approach that the author gives here, I mean, that's certainly one way that you could try to approach the
1: problem. Well, one thing that I want to point out that Joe said that I think is huge and this kind of jumps into a further later on. we'll we'll talk about it in a little while but source control with pull requests that is if you find yourself doing things like this this is where pull re- pull requests become extremely important because not only if you can get another set of eyes on it but sometimes it's useful just to have that visual interface to show you what you've changed right like you push that thing up there and you say wait a second i don't remember changing that many files you know, so it can be a nice visual tool just for yourself, so that you could say, so you can kind of double check yourself, like do a sanity check. So, so I'm gonna give you a tease here, okay? Because I am rather,
0: let's say, meticulous when it comes to putting together my commits and pull requests, and uh, like I I review my own stuff like crazy, like mad before I I put that commit or pull request in. So uh, I've got a tip for you. Uh, then, oh. That's going to help out with that. Let's do that. Well, wait. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> that's why it's a tease. Oh, okay. I know. I know what it is. All yeah, right. right.
0: So, okay. um, yeah. I don't know what else to say about splitting it. So, and and you know, as far as like you know, the next section about removing the error. Like I said, you know, the, the author here was talking about like introducing the smallest amount of change necessary to fix the bug. And he also makes another great point too that like sometimes there might be several bugs that. Are disguised as one. And sometimes as as the developer, you have to make the call, like, well, do I fix all of these? Or do I just fix this one and then maybe ticket the other ones because, you know, maybe their scope is so grand that it's like, well, you know, I'm not gonna be able to do it as one person in a given amount of time, right? Like, you know, you might have reasons that uh to ticket it so that it can, you know, as a, as a call to action to the rest of your team, right? That like, Hey, this needs
1: attention. Right. And you don't want to introduce new regressions. Like he even goes into, or I assume it was a, he, who was the author?
0: Oh yeah. We didn't say the author's name, but uh, it was a, he, Oh, you did. It was Robert, um, Robert Reed. Yes. Robert L. Reed.
1: So the thing that he also says is even if you see other code in there, this is not cleanup time, right? You shouldn't, if, you're, if your goal is to go in and fix a bug, you shouldn't be going in there and trying to clean up code or rewrite a bunch of code. You're supposed to try and fix the bug. And then that way you understand the change that, that you're making. You fully understand it, right? Like if you start trying to go through and make major sweeps... I do take a little bit of an issue with that, though. But I will say this, though. and, and, and
0: Because getting back to the, like the, the, the core essence of what he meant here... Like I ran into an issue even as recently as last week where like I saw some problems that that weren't necessarily part of the ticket that I was working on, but I thought, well, I can fix that while I'm here. Right. And then that ended up being a rabbit hole all by itself. Like j- just a gigantic, deep rabbit hole of like, Oh my God, I can't believe I had to change that much stuff. Right. And then, and then, you know, when problems came about, I was like, okay, look, <laughs> I mean, the, the what the real thing that I was trying to fix here was like maybe three lines. And now I've got like, you know, 81 files that have changed because I wanted to fix this other thing. No way, man. I'm like, and it's not working. So I'm right. undoing that and I'm just sticking to the, you know, the one fix. So, so sometimes you have to be aware of that, but to say, to say no cleanup at all, uh, sorry about that to say no cleanup at all though I don't necessarily agree with that because I also like and I think we've talked about this the boy scout principle of making it better than you found it right like leave it cleaner than you found it so like if you see some little things in there like especially like you mentioned uh, javascript a minute ago so like if you see like oh this line doesn't have a semicolon and it should it's javascript so it'll still work but you know Hey, make the world a little bit cleaner and, and put it in there, right? Like n- there's little
1: things that you could do. If you fully understand the code that you're working in, like if it's somewhere that you've been before and you're pretty familiar with it, I totally agree with that. If it's something where you're working in a new area of code that maybe you're not as familiar with and so you don't know the ins and outs and the pitfalls, then that can be dangerous. Just like you said, you went down a rabbit hole, right? And I'm not saying that you should avoid that either because that is how you learn things. But if your goal was to fix this one problem and it's, and it's a major issue, then that should be your first task and anything else is secondary to that. So I I agree with it. I also agree with the boy scout rule. I try and leave things nicer than what, you know, I came in, but You you do have to know your limit, sort of. You know what are you trying to accomplish?
0: Right, not major refactorings, but like as a developer, we owe it to ourselves and to you know the the company, the client, whoever the receiving end of that code is. Like you you owe it to them if you're going to be in the file, you know, and you see some things that that aren't huge major refactoring efforts that you could do to clean that up then clean it up because you're only helping yourself out the next time you come along. Right. So
2: I agree with that. What All about right. debugging using a log? I thought yeah. this was pretty straightforward.
0: Yeah. I didn't really think that there was anything more uh, to add to that, that, you know, as far as like, you know um, what we hadn't already said.
1: Yeah. I mean, we even covered this pretty well in the 12 factor app episode where we we're talking about logging.
2: So yeah, yeah. we love logs. We should make sure it just says we heart or I heart logs.
1: I think the one thing to point out here is with anybody that's dealt with logs, you, there's different log levels, right? Your, your info, your warns, your trace, that kind of stuff. So really what you want to do is you want to make sure that if you do have logging statements in your application, make sure that you have them in the right places so that all you have to do is change a config. And now you can get that extra information. So that that's really the one key thing here other than, you know, it's a stream of information. It tells you your flow. So,
2: Yeah, and I think Jason mentioned that, uh, one of his favorite things about Log4Net on the uh, MS Dev show that you were on. So, yeah, we like that. And we talked about um, logging a lot in the 12-factor app, so we will have a link to that.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to remember, too, if it was even uh, maybe if it was in that episode that you just mentioned, Joe, or if it was in this section – where they were talking about changing it on the fly, I think that was in the episode though that uh, the Alan was on.
2: Yeah, I don't. Really where they talked remember.
0: about changing the log level, like at uh, you know as the app was running, I thought that was mm-hmm. an interesting approach too. Yeah, yeah, that
2: would be really cool. So, next, how to understand performance problems. Yeah, this was a, a big good section. And one thing I thought was interesting is they said that it was easier th- than debugging. Do you guys think that performance problems are easy to deal or easier to deal with <laughs> than debugging?
0: I, I definitely did a double take when I read that. I was like, I mean, I, after reading the rest of it, I understood where he was going with it. But Initially I was like, "Whoa, wait, what? That's a bold statement."
1: I I, right. I sort of disagree cuz it depends on what your environment looks like, right? What is your stack? If you have 20 different pieces that come together to make your application work, then trying to find the performance bottlenecks might be a little bit more challenging. You know, and if That's it's true. a black box, you know, you're using some third-party cloud service. You have no idea what's going on. It it can be a real challenge to find that stuff out. So well, I guess, too, this is like another reason why I don't know. I, I, I really don't know that I stand by that statement
0: because he makes the statement of saying or the point of saying that, like, you know, before you try to make something f- faster, you need to have a, a good mental model of why it's slow. And but that mean that that to me signals that you already have like a, a strong understanding of the overall picture of the application, right? Like it's architecture and what components it's talking to or, you know, or what external backing services it's talking to, things like that. Like, and if you just start debugging an app for the first time, like you're not going to have all that, but you might be able to say like, Oh, well, this is the page that it is where I'm at, where this button, where this form is at. So I, I can easily find that. So now I've, you know, dramatically reduced the scope of the problem down to this one page right and then i can go from there and i know that it's on this form so now i've within that page i've narrowed the scope even further and i know that it's on this submit button so now i've I've narrowed it even further so the debugging part actually felt a little bit easier
1: to me depending on what type of problem you're trying to solve right it also depends on the type of profiling tools that you have, right? If you're trying to do a SQL Server type thing, it's fairly easy nowadays to run a profiler and find out what is terrible. If you're working with some sort of third, you know, cloud service, you may not have those kind of tools available to you. That's so a good point. It's it depends on what you're working with and that's why this is such a tough one and, and you know back then maybe it wasn't as hard because he does go on to speak a lot about you know most of your performance bottleneck is io okay right and in your case of the cloud that that would be io bound right yeah and and, and network bound whatever it may th- there's so many different pieces that come into play well with some this form now. of io right yeah and he and he has
0: in there the the um yeah, you know, the line about ninety percent of your time is going to be spent in
2: ten percent of the code. Yep, totally right. And one thing um, I, I liked to hear too is that he mentioned that it's usually not worth trying to get like a two or three times uh, improvement. You re- usually, you're looking for some sort of uh, you know order of magnitude, so ten times improvement, one hundred times improvement. You know, it doesn't really matter if something takes three seconds or six seconds. Six seconds sometimes. But, uh, you know, if you can get it from three seconds down to, you know, 30 nanoseconds, and that's pretty impressive.
1: You know, it, this kind of brings up one thing, though, that one of the reasons why I like JS. It, it was an article I read where a guy was like, you want to, a lot of us as seasoned programmers know how things work it, pretty intimately, right? Like, we know all the things top to bottom. And so we'll focus on the most minute of details starting off like, oh, I'm going to make this thing to work and scale to 5 million servers. You only got 10 users, right? right. Like it's, and So that's one thing I want to bring up with this. Performance is something you attack as it becomes a problem. Build your application, get your MVP out there, and then go back. And I know that's kind of outside the scope of this. Well, but-
0: it's actually not. Because if we go into the next section, which was how to fix performance problems, it. It's what you're saying is right on par yeah, a with point. with yeah. that section because there was actually you know um, one of the things he says is you know you know don't don't waste a lot of time trying to optimize something if it's only used one percent of the time right which is kind of in the same vein of, of what you're getting at that you know if you're only going to have a few users you know using the thing don't try to you know over architect it so that it can handle you know a billion users concurrently right. And yeah. I said, but billions, so that's a, that's kind of yeah, a real, nugget. like
1: it. One yeah. of the, one of the quotes in here that I liked was as a rule of thumb, you should think carefully before doing anything, unless you think it is going to make the system or a significant part of it, at least twice as fast. So going back to Joe's order of magnitude larger, you're talking about a hundred percent improvement, right? So that's what they're saying. Unless it becomes a problem, don't be spending time on it, Right
2: yeah yeah absolutely and a lot of times it's tempting to to do what I call uh, micro optimization so like swapping out arrays for lists or you know things like that and a lot of times those are nowhere near the bottlenecks it's that you know that query you've got running in a loop a thousand times that's killing you unnecessary
0: inner loops
2: yep. is one that one that he uh yep specifically calls out you know yeah i op- just optimizing loops in general is a big section of the uh i I did like the example
0: here. that he gave here about uh you know, counting cows by their legs instead of by their head. <laughs> but then I was like, oh, what if there's a three-legged cow? Then you're going to yeah. never
1: count the legs. <laughs> and they, he also said, before you talk about redesigning any part of a system, will it make it five to ten times faster? Because as we all know, redesigning any portion of anything can take a significant amount of time. So it, you really do have to weigh the benefits with with the opportunity cost of what you may be leaving on the table. Just do some redesign, and these are just the beginner yeah. steps of how to be a programmer. Yeah, this right. is this is <laughs> the basics.
2: So yeah, it pretty, is really important. And it's also really important to use a profiling tool, and even if that tool is just you know looking at logs, like you really shouldn't be guessing at what you think are the slowest parts of your application, because oftentimes that will be wrong.
0: Yeah, but <laughs> you mentioned logs and guessing though. Wasn't that specifically one of the things the Twelve Factor App called out as uh, if you were using logs to? Uh, how did they put it? Um,
2: ah, oh, forget it. I can't. I can't remember it. Well, no, I'd rather I, use logs than just you know going around and swapping out you know micro optimizations, moving variables up the top, or reusing variables. Man, I can't
1: find it in yeah. here. But there was somewhere, and it might have been this this section or another one where you said don't make like weird looking changes. If you're going to make something like just minorly faster, if it's at the expense of readability and maintainability, it may not be worth it. I think it was in this section, but I can't find it. Oh, I think I know. um,
0: Yeah. I I recall that vaguely. We'll get to it. But, uh, you know, we mentioned dealing with like inner loops and unnecessary loops and whatnot. You know, and and Joe, you brought up that there was a whole section on you know how to optimize loops, which is you know the next section, and there were some interesting ones in here. Like, um, you know he he says try not to divide. Yeah, saw that. I was like, that's that's an awesome little like you know it's a micro optimization, right? I mean, but I guess if you're dealing if you're trying to, uh, you know, squeeze out that
2: extra bit, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will wager, though, if you're working on a modern web application, that uh, dividing in a loop is not your problem. Right.
0: Well, that, but it was one of the ones he lists here, you know, yep. again, to Alan's point from earlier, though, this is like a you know, 13, 14 year old document. But still,
1: I mean, even division wasn't a, that big a deal back then. But yeah, try not do expensive typecast. That's actually a big one because I can take up heap space and that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, typecast. Yeah. I mean, that that's a big one. Definitely. Now, so this, this kind of goes off on a small tangent. I was listening to a JavaScript Jabber today, and they were talking about the Internet of Things. It was, I thought
0: you were going to bring up Meteor again because no, we no. know how you feel about Meteor. No,
1: um, <laughs> so here was here was something that was kind of cool is we think about things that we program in terms of, you know, how many gigs of RAM do you use? You know, we've got pretty fast processors and all that. I've like, never thought about that. Eh. We We – well – I mean, you don't think about it. I guess that's what I'm saying is you kind of take it for granted. Like what we write, we just know it's going to work for the most part, right? They were talking about, in this, the one guy designs chips that they're running JavaScript engines on now. And they might be small subsets, but he's like, you know, some of these chips run at 8 megahertz. Some of them run at 200 megahertz. And so when you start thinking about things like this, this might still be valid depending on what your type of platform or architecture is. Yeah,
2: fair enough. So, and yeah. remember, this book was written in 2002. So that's right when Google was getting started. They got started in 98. So this is around the time wow. that you heard about Google. And this is one year after XP was released. Wow. <laughs> So times were a little different. Back nice then. to put
1: that into perspective. So what you're telling me is HotBot was on its way out.
2: <laughs> That's right, <laughs> AutoVista.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, and, and there was, um, Hot, you, you know, know, another one of the optimizations, though, for uh, loops that was mentioned here was you know m- moving a pointer rather than recomputing indices, and this made me recall back. Uh, shoot, I, I I think the I think it was Mike that made the suggestion. Um, Alan had the the tip of the week about using the for each loop, right? And and how to deal with you know, modifying that for each loop uh, while you're iterating through it. And then I want to say it was the like, uh, it was can. a Twitter it was a message tweet. that came in Mike that said, "Oh yeah, because it was Mike because he he sent the tweet about uh, I've been mentioned on uh, uh blocks right, and uh, he had mentioned you know well if you use the for 4- a for loop instead of a for each loop, then you don't have the problem of um, that uh, exception when iterating through it. Yeah, because you're no longer referencing something that you're changing. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look up that Twitter handle real quick, just so that way he gets mentioned twice because I know it was on his resume. <laughs>
2: right? so I definitely thought it was interesting to spend so much time on loops, but uh, the, the next one was more uh, relevant to me. Um, dealing with IO problems. And they mentioned three main solutions for dealing with that, which I thought were all good. Um, Basically, caching lets you avoid it. Um, Representation that's basically storing your data in a smaller format in order to make it more efficient. And the third one was, uh, they called it uh, improve locality or pushing the computation closer to the data. I think of that as something like, you know, doing your where clause and your source and your order buys in your database rather than in code, stuff like that. You know, just um, moving the work kind of Further away from where you're uh, fetching it to.
1: Yep. You just covered that entire section. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, it was a good
2: section, and I just totally just
1: yeah. I was like, well, I don't know what to say about that. No, I mean yep. that, that sums it up. That was that was it.
2: The uh, the next well, section was I, managing memory. Oh, go ahead.
0: I don't know that he said this though, but um, you know, there was a quote about you know, often it's it's just the the question of improving the I.O. is it's better to question the improving the I.O. than some loop. Right. Right. So rather than going through optimizing a loop, sometimes it's better to go and look at your I.O. And that's going to uh, have orders of magnitudes of, of a performance benefit on your application. Yep. Yep.
2: All right. Yeah. So
0: how to manage memory.
2: Yeah, and so, um, you know, depending on your language, this can all kind of um, vary a lot. But one topic that kind of comes up a lot of times with, um, with OO, with garbage-collected languages, is basically stack memory versus heap. And, um, you know, I don't know if we've done a, a real big deep dive on this topic, but we should. if we haven't. No,
1: we did, totally. Uh, back when oh. we talked about boxing and unboxing. Oh, that's right. And .NET, because we actually got into the garbage collection, stack pointers, heap yep. pointers, all that, when they get cleaned up you know your two stages of garbage collection it we really did go deep on that one i thought might have been episode two or three like it was pretty yeah really it was episode well. two it was episode that was a two. good one
2: i think I, I don't think it got a lo- lot of love because boxing doesn't sound very sexy but uh, I, I think that well that was and i think we one. had in.net in the title right, right. and so uh, like yeah
0: it's like well who cares about boxing and unboxing .net? and like why do i you know if i don't already know what that is then i'm probably not going to care about it if i'm not a .net developer so it uh it definitely wasn't a fan favorite, but and it's still some good content in it. Yeah,
1: and we actually got better about this over time because what we found out as we started doing the podcast more and more is a lot of these topics transcend various different languages, right? So even even that episode, if if you don't know a lot about memory management and you don't know much about garbage collection and what boxing or any of that is, this applies to basically any kind of language that runs in some sort of VM. So Java... .NET, any of those kind of things. So while the specifics might be slightly different, that is an excellent episode to go back and find out about how your memory is managed for you.
2: And functional languages typically do a pretty good job of keeping this stuff, um, keeping the memory usage down. So you don't have to really think about that as much. But uh, I think that most people are still probably working in OO languages, although you hear about functional more and more every year.
1: Yeah, definitely. And a lot of people are bringing those functional type patterns over into OO. So oh, yeah. in picking up things. There was a quote in this
2: particular That's where, where
1: Faux came from, right?
0: The I don't f- know. FOE.
1: Functional
2: op- objectory. Oh, uh, I've uh, just, never heard of it. Oh, you should have a link for that. So Reme- I, I was making that joke
0: about, about the. You know, I made that joke about Faux programming before. <laughs>
1: never mind. It's gone. Yeah. <laughs> so check right, this right, out. People have probably heard the term memory leak before, and there was actually a pretty decent little line in here for, uh, for this. A classic m- mistake is to use a hash table as a cache and forget to remove the references in the hash table. Since the reference remains, the reference is non-collectible but useless. Basically, nothing's using it anymore, but you can't get rid of it, and this is called a memory leak. So basically, this thing hangs around forever because it can't be garbage collected. Now I would venture to say that a lot of our more recent garbage collection has gotten smart enough to take care of these type (laughs) things. Well, maybe not. So there was another great
0: a great quote in here. This is probably my favorite one of the of the document or the essay because. for all Objective-C developers, this one is going to ring true for you. You're, you're <laughs> going to love this, especially if you've been doing Objective-C for a while. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it's talking about, uh, he, he's talking about garbage collection and, and how, you know, dealing with, um, you know, allocating memory and freeing it up when you're done with it and, and trying to Automate that through some kind of garbage collection processes is so differ is so difficult a problem that the programmers often don't implement a rudimentary rud, yeah. often simply inter, implement. This is easy for me to say. I'm trying to read this quote. <laughs> it's so difficult that programmers often simply implement a rudimentary yeah, why rudimentary can I say this word <laughs> form of garbage collection. Just trust that Alan said it. <laughs> such as reference counting to do this for them.
1: So that's sad.
0: But but that's how Objective C works, though. It uses a reference count to know when it can be um, clean, you know, clean collected, garbage collected. Interesting. I'll never be able to say that that rude word about it. <laughs> but I don't know why I can't say that tonight. Uh, it, it you can read it, but you can't say it. Yeah. You know, speaking There's no of way. Rude. That's like a tongue twister word. I don't even. I think that word is like Latin, and it means uh, cannot be spoken.
2: <laughs> Would you say speaking of rude? Uh, speaking of rude, yeah. I was just gonna talk about the uh, next section, which is intermittent bugs. Yeah, these aren't fun. And that's when something works right nine out of ten times, but that tenth time. Which is probably going to be, you know, in the big demo to your board of directors. <laughs> it's it's a big deal, you know, and so it's going to crash and do bad things. And those are so horrible to track down and uh, include things like race conditions or maybe specific setups or specific data. And uh, that can be such a nightmare. And those are the kind of things that can, you know, keep you up to two in the morning and have no measurable progress made.
0: Right. Or maybe it's a, like a load problem. And until you get to a certain size of load, you're not going to be able to like see the problem. So in the meantime, you're like,
1: Nope, works on my machine. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) he had the perfect example in something that he actually got hit with was they were using some third party library that, that did some string manipulation or something. But basically what it boiled down to is it almost never had a problem, but when it did, what it turned out to be was there was a super long string and this thing was quadratic. So, you know, it ate up way more memory than everything else. So when you hit this boundary, it would just crash and it took them a long time to figure it out. And really the only way to go about this thing is to put good logs in place.
2: And definitely uh, It it's horrible when you don't have logs or something like this. So there's something that's happening. You can't reproduce it and there's no signs of it at all. Just makes me want to put my head down and cry.
0: The one thing though, that wasn't mentioned in this section that I was actually a little shocked about because it definitely was one that like I always it's this is always my go-to um the the, like the first thought that goes through my head whenever I deal with a problem this is like okay what's new what has recently changed right and is that in any way related and that wasn't
1: uh you know uh, one of the options that he discussed that's a really good point. I mean, that's kinda how we figured out that we fell out of iTunes for a little while, right? I mean, <laughs> we literally had to just bang our heads against the wall and say, All right, hold on a second, what changed? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in his example that uh you know, that he gave well, with that third party
0: library that they affectionately referred to as the French stripper. <laughs> I loved that that, that name for it. It, it 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 was software made in France that stripped HTML tags from text. Yep. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean that, that might not have applied in his situation, but certainly in a lot of situations I've seen that has been a, you know, a good starting point, at least is to say, you know, to ask yourself like what's new here.
1: Absolutely. The next section I thought was pretty good and that is how to learn design skills. And this was written before bootstrap,
2: by the way. Is this CSS? (laughs) No, this is not CSS. This might be before CSS, actually.
1: Come on, man. 2002 wasn't that long ago. I mean, this one's kind of cool. This is how to design software. And they say design skills. And, And, you know, nowadays we think of design a little bit differently. You hear design, you're like, okay, who made the website look that way? No, this is talking about basically. Why is the logo on fire? How do you put together a solid piece of software? How do you put together a nice product at the end? And one of the things that they talk about is go sit with a mentor, somebody who's been there and done it, watch them, follow them, tag along, see what they do, and then pick it up, you know, start doing it yourself. Take a small project and work through it.
2: Yeah, and um, I also wanted to mention the book, Don't Make Me Think. It's really nice. It's really short. It's got some really good examples, and we'll have a a link to that in the uh, resources we like.
0: Yeah, there were a couple quotes in this section that I that I liked though. That uh, one is that design is a matter of judgment that takes years to acquire. Right.
2: Yeah, I you thought, really need to respect your UI and UX people. it's, it's hard, and uh, I know if I for sure can't do it.
0: Well, not. I didn't even take it that way, like, um, because I you know I was joking about CSS, but you know when it when in this section when you were talking about design skills, I took this more to mean like software design architecture. Yes. Like, okay. Not just visually designed. So, you know, I kind of took that statement as like, um, you know, take, take, uh, how to say this, like you, you, your peers that have been either working in this framework for, that have more experience in this framework, or maybe they've just been, you know, a working period longer than you have, you know, there's things that you could learn from them and, and you know, they might have judgments around design for specific reasons because based on that experience. So yeah, you could learn something from them. So I thought that that was an interesting one. And then uh, another one that he says is, you know, don't become dogmatic about particular design
1: styles. Yes. I agree with that. And I thought, yeah, that, that that's a good one too. Like don't get stuck in your ways. Design is an art, not a science. and that's true i mean there's if you think about it like when you go to build your application you've heard of uh uh what's it called domain domain driven design to where you think about your business and department so you have your customer service and you have your accounting you have this kind of thing right do you build your software that way do you build everything in layers do you have a database tier then do you have some sort of Rest here. On top of that, like there's there's tons of things, and that's why they say don't become dogmatic about it. There's so many different ways to do it, and they all have their pros and cons. So it's it's worth watching what other people do and experiment yourself. Right?
2: You know what's interesting too is uh, a lot of times teams will have like a style, and so if you say work on a small team for uh, you know a number of years and it's in the same framework, then you can kind of develop um, you know patterns that. Um, aren't necessarily the best. And I think it's kind of funny if you like switch jobs or, or, you know, maybe switch teams or switch projects, a lot of times you'll get some kind of some fresh ideas. Or you'll see people solving similar problems in different ways. And sometimes it's better and sometimes it's not. And you can kind of update that. But it is interesting uh, always just to see how other people solve problems. And uh, you don't want it to, de- to deny yourself that experience if you uh, don't, say, you know, work with a large team or, or don't get out there much. Yeah so the
0: last section in this uh um the personal skills part was how to conduct experiments.
2: Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. I mean, I the, the uh the big takeaway for me there was just having a hypothesis and I I think it's good. It's it's one thing to just kind of, you know, refresh and click around and see if anything interesting happens and it's another to say, all right, I did this and this should happen and then if it doesn't then it's you've got somewhere to go and somewhere to think about and try to figure out what you think of uh, that's incorrect. You know, what of your uh, your base case scenarios, which which thing you were assuming to be a fact is not.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the kinds of experiments that he gets is talking about testing with small examples It reminded me of, like, unit testing. It, mm-hmm. It's very similar to
3: that.
0: <laughs> I mean, like, basically his description there... I, I, you know, uh, how did he word it? Um, testing systems with small examples to verify that they confer, conform to the documentation or to understand their response when there is no documentation. I'm like, well, that's pretty much like a unit test, right? Like you're, you're confirming that it does what it's supposed to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and there are little things like that. Like I, a lot of these were like that. Testing small code changes to see if they actually fix a bug. Right, right. Like we've talked about, you know, uh, writing unit tests just to uh, see to 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 see the bug so that the the test fails and then keep coding, you know, until that test passes.
1: Right. Yep. So I, I thought that was interesting. All right. So it's now that time of the episode where I'm going to beg, <laughs> please, if you haven't already, and you're enjoying the show. You know it's awesome that you guys come up and leave our our comments on on our episodes, and please do come join us at Slack. But if if you want to really have a heart, <laughs> go up to codingblocks.net/slash review and click on either iTunes or Stitcher, and just leave us. I mean, even a one liner or something. You know, I mean, some of what we do is just one lines, but. If you do that, that would greatly help us out. It helps us get in front of more people. And, you know, we we really enjoy doing this. And that is just a small way of repaying us for the time that we take to do this. So if you would, please do that. We would greatly appreciate it. And as mentioned before, we'll give you a shout out here uh, in in the episodes. And, And there have been listeners
0: that have specifically installed the applications necessary to leave that review. And I can't tell you, like, how much I appreciate that.
1: Yeah. Like I the, mean,
0: seriously. The, the fact that you took not only the time to leave the review, but you went out of your way to install an application or two, as it might have been for some, like, that's awesome. And I can't thank you enough for that.
1: And if you're like me and you truly hate iTunes, like, that's <laughs> special. Like, that's, that, you actually deserve a badge for that. Wow. Because I, I really hate iTunes, but unfortunately it's the only way to actually leave a review is to go in there and do it, unless you have an iPhone. So, yeah, if you would, please do head over to codingblocks.net slash review and drop us a one-liner up there,
2: or if you want to make it longer, we read them and we love them. So please do that. This episode is sponsored by Infragistics. The Internet of Things, mobility, and connected systems are driving the need for big data solutions that are imperative to help your users and customers make better decisions faster than ever before. Experts in data visualization Infragistics developer tools drive custom app development for any data visualization scenario on any platform. And Report Plus is an enterprise-ready, self-service BI dashboard solution that opens up your enterprise big data for end-user consumption. Now head over to www.infographics.com and get your free trial today. All right. So before we
0: get back into the next section, which uh, – what is that next section? Team skills? I wanted to go over – Which series is more often? So in the last episode, the survey that was asked was, which series is more awesome? Is it Star Wars or is it Star Trek? And if you recall, the last episode, that was during the Star Wars season, right? So, you know, the movie was coming out. You know, it was fresh on everyone's mind. And it was was Star Wars season. Like, everybody was celebrating Star Wars, right? Which one, which
1: one... Now, you haven't cheated, have you, this time? So, I haven't gone and looked at the okay, results. Okay, okay, okay. But I saw some emails tricking da, da, in. Da, 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 da,
2: So, hold on. I feel like programmers are going to be Star Trek.
0: Sorry. Okay, so, so Joe's taking the Star Trek side. Alan's taking
1: the Star Trek. Star Trek side? That's not my choice, but that's what I feel most people
2: chose. Wait, what? Jar Jar Binks.
1: I would, that's not your choice. That's not my choice for what I would have oh, picked, oh, but I oh, think oh, what oh, the majority sorry, picked sorry. was Star Trek. Okay,
0: well let me ask you this then, since you both picked the same one, you want to narrow it down. Put a number to it. And since it was since since it was two choices, which percentage do you think what do you think that where do you think it landed? 65-35. five. Sixty five Star 65. Trek thirty five Star Wars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 35 you?
2: 35 for Star Wars only because of Adats and Star Destroyers.
0: Wait, what what was that number?
2: 35 for oh, Star Wars.
0: So, so you're both going 65-35. Apparently. Yep. Well, you guys aren't really being fun about playing this because there's supposed to be like a winner. And I'll go ahead and tell you, neither one of you are it. It was Star Wars. Really? And here's the most interesting part.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Somebody put that Wookie back in the cage. <laughs> You, you you both went with sixty five thirty five? It was sixty-nine thirty-one. Or wow. S- did I say that right? Sixty-one thirty-nine. Sixty-one thirty-nine.
1: Okay, so it wasn't far off on the percentage, just got' kind of them flipped. Yeah, you hit you had them in the wrong order. Wow, I really thought Star now, Trek was gonna win that one.
0: Now here's the question. Do you think that most people voted Star Wars only because of all the recent hype because yeah. the movie was out? Yeah. Like if the next Star Trek movie was Coming out in two days, that the hype would be around Star Trek.
1: Well, when the next no. Star Trek movie comes out, we're rerunning the survey.
2: There you go. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you know what the thing is? Um, Star Trek doesn't get hyped as much because it's for more um more rational and logical people, so it doesn't well, have that like huge pointed, kind of wave. Uh,
0: like like there's some jabs. Are you in trying that to say statement. I'm irrational? I'm
2: just saying there might be, you know, a difference in average IQ between the two. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, Jar Jar don't Binks. Stop. Please don't listen, stop listening.
0: <laughs> listen, Jar Jar Abrams did a good job of directing that last movie. Uh, uh, wow. Nice. All right. <laughs>
1: All right. So so let's get into team skills. So, why is estimation important?
2: Uh, it's not. I hate it. I just let the architect do it. Oh, God. Really? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, So, I mean, I get why it's important. It's important for people that make plans. It's important for project managers and bosses and people who have to report to boards of directors and the public. Why it's important to programmers is because you know we don't want to look stupid and we also don't want to look like we're slacking or like we're stupid <laughs> for not being able to get things done
0: well it, i can go even better than that though like you want to make your boss happy your boss wants to make his boss happy your boss's boss wants to make his boss etc until you ultimately make the company happy the the customer happy so part of your making your boss happy is being able to provide an estimate right, and, and, right but- and it being something realistic. Like if you tell him you're going to have something done, you know, a new feature done by a certain time, then, you know, you want, you want to live up to that.
1: Well, if I recall, our buddy, John might've estimated six months on one thing and had it done in a day. <laughs> well, there's also been the opposite, you know, something
0: was like, you know, five days and right you know, it might have taken three months, six months. But you know, those, those things happen, right? Like, Um, and, and, and that's why there was a great quote in here about the, he says, he says the fact that it is impossible, but theoretically, both theoretically and practically to predict accurately how long it'll take to develop software is often lost on
1: managers. And it really is. I mean, he even goes on with another quote that I loved. I estimate that if I really understand the problem, (laughs) it is about 50% likely that we will be done in five weeks. If no one bothers us during that time. What this really means is I promise to have it all done five weeks from now. That's what it gets translated to in your manager's mind.
0: Well, well, really, but put some context around that quote, because I, I liked that quote too. He was saying that like when we let's say, okay, let's let's say that I'm your manager right. and I come up to you and I'm asking you to give me a quote on something, the tendency is to think wishfully. And that's where that first quote about you know I estimate that if I understand the problem it's like fifty percent likely blah 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 right like you're you're thinking wishfully that that's what's going to happen and and you're even putting there like if no one bothers me during that time there's so many assumptions in there like if I really understand the problem right that it's fifty percent likely that it's going to be done right right? no 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 not halfway done it no halfway confident that it will be done i'm either gonna have it done in five weeks or i'm not right it's binary right and and then there's the assumption that no one's gonna bother me during this time like i'm going to shut the door lock it and turn off all social platforms no one's gonna be to contact me like that's never gonna happen
1: yeah i mean i think the the key takeaway to this entire thing is why is it actually important there's a couple right your manager needs to be able to report to his boss that they have a plan for when something can be done and that's key but then the other two is is so you build trust with with the people that you're working with oh somebody skipping ahead hmm? well that's part of it right like i mean you don't want to sandbag too much because then people will know and you don't want to you don't want to fall behind. Unfortunately, as programmers, we know that you run into brick walls that you just can't anticipate, right? Like, it just happens, and that's why it's so difficult, but it is important because you want people to know what your plan is and what and what you can, you know, realistically have done.
2: Right. Yeah, there is an incentive there to give a shorter answer. You know, you don't want to be the guy that says, oh, it's it's going to take probably a couple of days to add that button, even though that, you know, my teammate added a similar button in an hour, <laughs> yeah you know, cuz things are different and uh you know sometimes you spend 4 hours trying to figure out why your computer keeps restarting. You know, and it happens. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and and the problem as, as he puts it is that like if you're going to um you know say that wishful estimate, right? Then that requires that you explicitly discuss that with with your your boss so that you can say like, "Listen, I don't know if you caught all of those assumptions, but let's let's iterate through them one by one and make sure that we are on board with what this means, right? Like right. you know, I, I'm only 50% confident that I'm going to make it in 5 weeks, and that's if I understand this thing. And you know, if no one's going to bother me, right? Like as nothing else is going to come up in the next 5
2: weeks for me, right?
0: Right. Well, I, so, I have two
2: more questions for you guys. Yeah. Uh, the first is, have you ever had a boss change the goal line on you?
1: Oh, never. Change
2: the feature. What? Why would anybody ever do that? That never happens. <laughs> that only never happens maybe. in movies. That's right. <laughs> well, yeah, it happens all the time. People who ask for something don't know exactly what they want, or what they want changes kind of over time or as things get closer. And so you've estimated on something that you're not doing anymore, and yeah. uh, now you're working on something completely different. Well, Well, I think the term for that, though, is scope scope creep. creep. Yeah, I was going to say,
1: affectionately known as scope creep. Uh, So what was your second question?
2: What do you do uh, if your boss asks you for an estimate on a large task? Okay, so
1: this leads into the very next section, how to estimate Uh programming time. And the thing that I love the most was his honest response was, if you're asked to do something big... Stall. Yeah, <laughs> yep. I, I loved that statement. It, here's the thing, right? And he says it's the most honest thing you can it's do. It's true. It's absolutely yep. true. It, it, I'm actually going to give an example. So we had Vlad Rebach on the show months ago. I don't remember what the episode was, but he nine. was the one that did Aspect. Oh, yeah. That was, uh, oh, I was going to say six. Was it nine? So we were all working on this huge project at the time that was, you know, we were trying to scope it out. And when I say huge, like this thing was going to span anywhere from six months to a year. Nobody had any idea. And the problem was, is everybody was trying to figure out how much time is this going to take? And here's the biggest problem as a program. We all run into it. You don't know. You can make all the the speculations in the world, even being a super experienced guy, until you get in and start iterating towards it, you don't even know the kind of stuff you're going to run into. And that's what he did. So while everybody else was trying to plan out, okay, well we're going to need at least this much time for this or whatever. He's was like, you know what? Let me just start tearing it apart and see what happens. Right. And so that's why the stall thing is so important. While, while he was able to start iterating towards it, he was able to come up with a better estimate. So stalling in the beginning, he couldn't give a good answer, but as he got in and started feeling what the pieces were like, then he could actually realistically say, hey, look, man, it took me this much time to do this one section, all right? I know that we have 20 other sections. If I were to extrapolate out, I can tell you that it's going to be at least this much time.
0: Yeah, and, and the author here, he specifically points out, you know, that while stalling, uh, to po- you know, you could cons- possibly consider doing or prototyping the task itself, which yes. is exactly what you're describing here. Yep. Um, you know, that except you know that actually happened um and and you know there's a lot of benefit to that to to both the author's point and to Alan's uh point there with, with that story is that you know you get like a real real world experience of like whatever that implementation of that task is right that that can then be used as a data point uh to help you know later now I have had situations though where the initial, uh, prototype or whatever you know the part that was initially um, picked just at random happened to be um, you know an easy one in disguise right and you know that's then thrown off the estimate because then you 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 prototype that one not realizing at the time not knowing that it just happened to be easier than others that you thought were just like it and then you you base your estimate off of that first one. And then, as you get into it, you're like, "Oh my God, wait a minute! These other scenarios are so much more difficult." There's, and you, know, I,
1: I've had that happen. Well, I will say along those lines though, I've worked with some really good project managers in the past, and th- the whole thing is, if you think that it's going to take longer, let me know sooner rather than later, right? Like what mm-hmm. you don't yes. want to be doing is, you've you've scoped this thing out to be six months. You base that off that simple task that you had at the front of it. And then all of a sudden, here you are, you're five months in and now you're like, man, there's no way we're going to get this done. Whereas if three months in you had said, you know what, that first one we did was a softball. Like we knocked that one out. But then these other ones that we've started on have really set us back. You know, you're only halfway in at that point. If you can somehow set expectations and talk to your manager, they can then go go to bat for you, right? Now, that's not saying that it's going to get moved. But at least if you set if if you do constant communication, where you let people know along the way where you're at, people are way more receptive to it. Other than, wait, well, you've been hiding this from me, and now you're going to tell me at the right. very end that you're not going to get it done. You like,
2: have to communicate. Yes, and that yeah, is. Yeah, this is not a technical problem, and that's why it's under the team skills section. This is communication. You know, you need to communicate early and often, raise the flags, and you need to constantly be setting expectations to the people you're working with so that they, you know, aren't, aren't surprised.
1: Yeah. And I really liked, he went into things like, you know, programming's part of what we do, but then there's documentation, there's, there's other things. And he said, give visibility into what you're spending time on, right? If, if you're spending two times more time on documenting than you actually thought you need to let the people know that right? don't don't like if it's going to take you twice as long to document than it is going to be the code, then you need to let,
0: you need to let your boss know as part of your estimate, here's what the estimate is. And here's where the
1: breakdown of that. And this part is going to be the documentation so that it's clear to everybody. Absolutely. And you know, there was another thing that I found at the, I think it was towards the end of this that I loved and we've all done it. When you estimate, you typically are estimating based off your knowledge All right, your skill set. Yeah. And it's easy to do because you know your knowledge, you know your skill set. But if you have a team of people with different experience levels,
2: you can't
1: (laughs) assume if you're an if you're an expert programmer, that everybody's going to work as fast as you. And so if you have a few people on the team that maybe aren't as familiar with the product or whatever, you can't say, hey, it's going to take two weeks, assuming that everybody's working at your level. Right when you got people that obviously are going to be slower, and that's hard to do. Right, yeah. I it's funny because I had that
0: ha, that same quote highlighted that you know the strong programmer estimates um, based off of his or her skill, and then a weak progr- a weaker programmer is assigned the task and held to and that held estimate. to that estimate. Yeah. You know, and then it's like, oh, but you because know, he also goes into like padding the your estimates too, and that um, you should explicitly pad them. Right. Don't implicitly pad it, but explicitly pad the estimate yep. and make. And that's part of what you're communicating is like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to ex- explicitly give myself a couple of days, you know, one or two extra days just in case. And, uh, you know, here's why
1: Right, and there was vacation time. There was sick time. There was. You know, well, that was when, when you're on a grander scale. Yeah, right. Sure. It, but that's what they were saying. They said, write it out don't just say I was actually on a project one time where they were going to let a consultant go because he wanted to take a vacation in the middle of this project. And it's like, wait a second. You didn't think that anybody in the middle of summertime was going to want a vacation. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. But I mean, he goes, he, he even talks about it, it, you know, padding it
0: explicitly in, in, communicating that even for the smaller tasks so yeah you're right definitely if you're if you're doing this for like a team then you need to take that into consideration but even if it's just something for you yourself that you're being asked to estimate, like how long is this going to take you to do and you if you are uh you know if you want to pad that then you need to make that padding known Yes. Right. And and that goes back to your point, too, about uh, building trust. Right. So that so that as a developer, you know, there's a this trust between you and your manager. Like he knows, hey, if Alan says that it's going to take three days to do this, then it's going to take three days to do this. And if he says, hey, it's going to take three days. But just in case if I run into some problems, there may be an extra day or so, then, you know, that's bu- that's. Establishing that trust, they're like, "Hey, I can really rely on like that that estimate, that quote that he's giving me."
1: It's goodwill, and as a developer, that's hard to do, because you you run into. It. I mean, Outlaws joked about CSS. I know Joe's run into this as well, but sometimes you get that problem that seems like it's a five minute thing, <sighs> and there five hours later, you're sitting there going, "Why is this a thing? Why why is this a problem?" Right? So it, it's it's very very difficult. I, I don't want to. I want people to understand estimation is tough. It is very hard. And sometimes it's even worse when you give an estimate and then you have to backpedal, but you need to have open communication.
0: Yeah, I mean, you the know, problem I, is that... I'm sorry, Joe. Um, all good. The, the problem is that these quotes, uh, these estimates that you give, they become deadlines.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's um, the, the The rise of Agile really reflects that thought. You know, waterfall didn't work. Planning things out so rigidly just didn't work and so uh you know we're basically the the industry as a whole has been working towards getting things to work in smaller batches and so we can kind of control those variables a little bit more because it's it's easier to say i think this is going to be four hours than to say i think this is going to take us four months you know it just there's less risk involved when it's a smaller estimate right although it does mean more estimating (laughs) i guess you know daily or weekly or sprintly but that kind of brings up another thing real quick that I don't even think was mentioned in here
1: is that really brings out the need for people to think about iterating towards something as opposed to, I have this huge project, right? Um, yeah, I want you to scope this entire massive project mm-hmm. out. Start building it up, right? Start, start thinking in pieces and start building towards it because you can get way more done And let's be honest, if you can get little pieces in front of people more frequently, they feel more comfortable about it. If you tell somebody you're going to have something done in a year and a half and it's going to take you this much time, people are going to lose confidence because they're not going to see this thing. Well, I guess this is part of the popularity and
0: the ultimate win for uh, Agile versus Waterfall, right? Absolutely. So uh, the next section is how to find out information.
1: I like this section. I like some of his insights here. It this one is of pre- was pre Stack Overflow, by the way. It really was. This was pre a lot of things that we use nowadays. But i like, oh th-
0: according to you guys, man, this thing might have well been before the internet. Oh man, this like was, we were coding on
1: stone tablets, and these are back with T Rexes. Oh my god, <laughs> this is <laughs> no, before it,
2: Fitbit, man.
1: It, it was before Fitbit, before iPhone. So, ah. One of the things that he said, and I still think there's a lot of truth to this, although there's way more resources available now. But a lot of people, their first inclination is to go search the web. He's like, if you are looking for solid information, go to the library and get a book, or go buy the book. What? On, so here, it, the best way I know how to describe this is try and figure out how to set up Apache on Linux. All right go search on Google and after you get back 10 billion results, I don't even know if it's even that little and they all are different, then you're going to be frustrated because you're going to be chasing your tail. You're going to get bits and pieces of stuff everywhere and you're not going to know what you did. If you go buy a book, then you're going to have one author explain from beginning to end how he set it up. And so at least you have a resource you can go back to if you need to figure it out again. Right? So I think there is a lot of, there's a lot of value to having a reference that you can go back to consistently. And, yep. and that's one thing I like about the book. RTFM. Oh God, don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he specifically says that, like
0: you were talking about searching the internet or right. And he's, he was talking about avoiding that for like opinionated, you know, or subjective type of information. Right. Cause right. you're, you're not going to get like, you're going to get 10,000 answers. Like your point about, uh, apache right but it did it it did remind me of not a quote i guess but um like i don't albert einstein is is quoted as saying something that he really didn't it was just uh, his actual words had were were i don't know changed but there's this there's this i don't know what else to call it but a quote this this statement that supposedly Albert Einstein said, this says never memorize what you can look up in books. <laughs> now the actual statement that he said, um, was that, uh, I do not carry such information in my mind since it is readily available in books. The value of a college education is not the learning of many facts, but the training of the mind to think. And, and so I, I, I thought about that, um, Statement while I was
2: reading the section, and I thought it was, you know, it was interesting. Well, what, can you imagine, uh, you know, a scrum in, in the morning and your boss uh, asked for your stats, and you're like, Well, I ran into a problem with Apache, so I, I went to Barnes and Noble <laughs> and I got a book. I'm um, in chapter two, so you know, well, okay, on this project for a week,
0: but but books today are far different, right? Like, you can go online. For most of the stuff, like you're not you're not going into a brick and mortar store.
1: Yo, moron! Why'd you drive all the way down there? You could have just downloaded it on your Kindle, right? Right, or or your Nook. Since he
0: mentioned Barnes and Noble, right, right. Equal opportunity, (laughs) because Nook Nook is a big deal.
1: A lot of people used to be. Is it still? Um, I don't. It it still (laughs) is. So yeah, I, I don't know. This one was pretty interesting. The other thing I liked about it at the very end was, and we've all been there, right? Where you have this thing you're like man and you're waffling on it you've gathered more information than you could ever possibly consume and you're still waffling on it and and he basically closes with use your gut you know right. you you make a decision at some point like there's there's a point to where you you have to quit thinking about it you know there's there's you know do it or get off the pot basically make the decision and move on and and you gotta feel good about it. Yeah, I have a friend that's done that. Like he's read everything there was about the Surface Pro
0: Four, right? And knows all about it. He's like so badly wants it, but he hasn't dropped the hammer to
1: buy it. Man, whatever. So <laughs> yeah. Oh, did you know who I was talking Actually, about? Actually it wasn't the Surface Pro Four, it's the Surface Book. It, it, that... Well,
0: it changed when the Surface Book came out. Yeah. So you know that guy. I, I I've
1: heard of him. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, he told me it was a service uh, book and, and he just wasn't, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so this next section was kind of scary to me. How do
0: how do you utilize people as information sources? Uh, yeah. We've talked about this before. Oh. So the one thing that, that he starts off with saying though, is that you have to be respectful, you know, respect your own time, but also you have to respect the other person's time too. Right. Like, that's key.
2: Yeah, I, I worked with a guy once who uh, he would always say, I've never gotten any training in this. And as you know, for you know programming, there usually isn't some sort of training. There's no one-week program I can send you to to teach you how to do what I do. But he was constantly coming to it with, like, really minor problems, and it would always be no one's trained me how to do this. No one's showing me how to do this. I'm like, I, I don't know. It's setting variables and then, you know, <laughs> using them. Like what is their, what is their train you on? Like, I'm sorry. You just got to kind of struggle through it. One thing I liked about this. Is, so
1: what you just said, I would have gone crazy. One thing that this guy wrote in here that I really liked was the amount of time you spend talking to each person in your organization depends on their role uh, more right. than their position. And that's important Like, people a lot of times will think, well, the VP, I can't eat up his time. You know, that may not be it. It might just be your direct manager who's involved in a lot of things, and so their time is very important, so you can't just suck it up. And they say, (laughs) you should talk to your boss more than your boss's boss, but you should talk to your boss's boss a little. Right. And that's very important, and a lot of people miss this. A lot of people don't want to get involved at that level, but if you ever want visibility and you want to understand more than just the task you're working on – that can be key to a lot of things. But the
0: but the way I also and took this too though about the the role instead of the title was that, you know, you may have a coworker who technically has the exact same title that you have, but yet that person for whatever reason they're acting in a capacity that's greater than, you know, that's that's really above what that title is, but for whatever reason, you know, b- they have the same job title that you have. Right. And so, you know, that, that, that's a person that you should take, you know, you could talk, you should talk to differently than someone else. Right. Like you should value that person's time. Right. Because they're, you know, I I don't know how to say it, but other than, you know, they're doing more,
1: you know, for the, for the team. And that's true. I mean, that happens anywhere you go. There's certain people that have those types of tasks They also take it down a notch, too. They say, hey, if you're working with interns, this is important. Interns, if you've ever worked with any, and I know I have, I'm sure you guys both have, they can be a time drain. But here's the thing. Everybody has to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And all you can try and do as a mentor, and it's your job as a mentor, to instill a certain level of, look, dude, I want you to go spend your due diligence and try and figure out everything you can before you come back to me, right? I don't care if that's an hour from now or a day from now. I want you to go do it and I want you to give it a good effort. Now, when you come back to me, I expect to have something in front of me to look at, right? When you do it, I may tell you that that's not a great solution, but it's an opportunity to learn. And if, if that intern took that initiative and came to you and spent the time on their own to go figure it out, now it's your job as the mentor to say, excellent. I like what you did. It's not perfect. Let me show you how I can improve this or how you can improve this. And then, so instead of it becoming a constant him coming to you or she coming to you and asking nonstop questions, make them do something and then show them how to improve it and then tell them why. And then that way you kind of reduce the amount of time that they're eating up of yours, but they're both of you are getting something out of it because this guy might turn into a rock star. This girl might turn into a rock star, right? So you're investing in them, hoping that it will pay off in the future.
0: Yeah. I mean, there was another, uh, another point that he made here, which was that when you're, you know, talking, talking to the, you know, your teammates and, and, you know, someone is using you as an information source let's say for example or vice versa each person is learning something about the other one right like as the person answering uh, the you know the the quest the question for information right like that person's learning like oh this is what that person knows and i can go to that person anytime i have this question and as the person who's doing the answering then you know that like oh well this is the type of questions that this guy's going to come at me with or, you know, male, female, whatever. Um, you know, this person is going to come to me with, you know, either like really strong, good, well thought out questions or basic questions, but the value of, of that, uh, of those interactions can diminish the more often it's done. Right. Right. Totally. And so, so you, that's part of like, you
2: have to respect that, right?
0: And yeah, so I thought that was a very important point.
2: Yeah, I used to work with a guy named Jim, and uh, it was always <laughs> just so much easier to go ask him your question than it was to even Google because, you know, he had the context. He knew the kind of stuff you we was working on. So everyone would just kind of line up by Jim's door. This is a small company too. And so uh, the company actually instituted, they called it Open Gym Hours, where you were allowed to bug Jim from like 10 to noon every day, but then you had to leave him alone so he could get some work done too. And it was, uh, you know, it was, it was awesome cause Jim was awesome, but it was also, you know, pr- pretty bad that I would, you know, end up going to him to solve my problems rather than spending a little bit more time and learning about, you know, whatever it was and, and kind of moving on. But just thought that was kind of interesting. Well, you know, here's what Jim could, uh, could learn from is how to document
0: wisely.
1: Well, hold on oh. before, before we go there. <laughs> wait, wait. Yeah. Before we go there, one other thing that I really liked in here was as a developer, speak to people that aren't necessarily just your boss. So one thing that I really liked is that he mentioned that, you know, Hey, if you have access to the head of sales, oh right, right. You're working on this product. You kind of know what this product does, but getting somebody else's perspective on how this thing is sold or what it's being used for, how it's being used can be super valuable to how you think about things as a developer. So don't always just think about your direct report or who you're reporting to or who whoever they report to. If you have access to other people that are willing to share information, keep some open ears, right? Listen to them and you will learn even if it's just one little thing, you'll learn stuff that that may be invaluable to you as a developer and maybe even to your team. yeah, I, I liked that uh, that comment. It was kind of like just you know w- watching how
0: stakeholders in other parts of the company, Work and operate and then, you know, give you more insight. So, yeah, it was a good one. So, moving on to how Jim can learn to document wisely. Sorry, Jim. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I loved, like, the first statement he makes here. Life's too short to write crap nobody will read. Right.
1: (laughs) Roger that. I do like
2: that. It gets stale so fast. I mean, you, you make changes to the code every day. It's a torture to keep up with documentation. It can be, for sure. I do like documenting the reasons behind doing things, especially when you, if you're doing something that's a little bit strange or unintuitive. You know, you can kind of write little comments about what the purpose is, whether it's a hack, whether there's a really good reason, you know, whether you're meaning to change it in the future, whatever it is. I, I like that sort of stuff. There was one important
0: point though that I thought that he made here, and that is that writing good this is this is his
1: quote. Writing good documentation is first of all good writing. Yeah, but yeah. following up with that, and I think this might even be more important if not on the same level, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Basically, if you would come by and read this documentation and be like, really? Really, right, and you're and you're sitting there yelling at the documentation, Don't be that guy, you know, write documentation as if it was going to be you visiting this thing and say, "Okay, that was helpful. I understand this right don't if you at least think about what what you would want to get out of it and you put it in there, even if you're not the best writer on the planet, that can be helpful,
2: right. Yeah, yeah and, um, he, as far as uh, documentation too, it's really nice to not need documentation. Like, uh, for example, w- you know, one thing that's better than having a documentation about how to say set up your dev environment is having a script that does it for you, or having you know good uh, variable and method names and having your code properly factored. Right, that's a great
0: point. He he does go on to mention you know uh, the importance of self explanatory code, but uh, there was one another great quote in here that that. I want to read that he says, which is that the documentation, if not written perfectly can lie and that is a thousand times worse. Yes. And when I read that, I was like, that is such a true statement because how many times have you ever read bad documentation? And it might not even be for your own. it could be for third party stuff and you'll read that documentation. You're like, Oh, okay. So all I got to do is X, Y, and Z, Right. Oh, wait a minute! I know I'm about to get Alan right here because I can give you a prime example. Anyone that has ever, in the history of the internet, worked with PayPal's API Man. can back me up that that is some horrible, horrible documentation. Preach on, <laughs> right? And and it's so contradictory in like different sections that you read. Like, yeah, that that is a great example of just. Awful, awful documentation.
1: It is not clear. And here's the other thing too. So he talks about coding documentation, right? Like documenting your code and why you should not do it. And this goes to what he just said about it can lie. Do not, your code should be readable and most programmers can get it. The only time you should put documentation in your code is if you're putting a comment as to why something weird is happening, you know, why you're doing some odd thing in there. Otherwise, it should be self-documenting because if you start trying to document your code and then you have this other documentation and they end up conflicting, you don't know what the truth is, and that becomes a big problem.
0: Well, even worse, and in fact, <laughs> this is kind of funny because I just ran into this uh, today.
1: Oh, you read where, one of my comments in code.
0: <laughs> no, it, 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 it wasn't. No, it wasn't yours. But, but um, I was reading through some code from another developer, and there was a comment in the code that was no longer true. Ah, uh, yeah. And so, the problem—the problem with writing overly verbose comments in your code—is that. Whoa, sorry about that. Is that, um, you know, as you go through refactoring it, it's you know we have tools that can easily refactor the code, but oftentimes those tools don't touch the comments at all. Right. So now you have these codes that are, are, are these these uh, doc, this, you know uh, comments in the code
1: that are no longer relevant, misleading, well, or completely misleading. Yeah. yeah, that's the problem. If you read something, you're going to assume that it's true, right? I mean, that's going to be your assumption unless you get bit too many times so, or bitten too many times. So,
2: yeah. So, which is a great segue into how to work with poor code. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Now I take major umbrage with this title, if nothing else, because it's all bad code. (laughs) Sometimes (laughs) there's worse
0: code. (laughs) Well, I I like uh, I. There've been a couple. uh, I think I think even a a Twitter follower that we got a while back had a statement like you know for their their little Twitter status or whatever the the slogan for that user. I don't know what Twitter calls that.
1: What do they uh, call your that byline,
0: maybe. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Your byline. Um, he uh, he had something along the lines of writing tomorrow's legacy code today. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yes. Right. That's awesome. And it's so true. Right. Like so, your point about like it's all poor code. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the greatest thing. Like that code that you're writing right now that you're so proud of.
1: You know that project. It is amazing code right now, and tomorrow it won't be. Well, you know, the funny part about this is we've talked about solid and dry and all that, and and Joe went through and tried to torture himself and do a completely solid application at one point, and you end up with like nine bajillion interfaces and whatever, and here's the thing, right? Like, that's not even good, because nobody can ever follow it, and so there's a fine line between what's good code and what's poor code. And a lot of times it's opinionated. Like I, I, am friends with a guy who I would consider a very competent programmer, very good. Thank you. Thank and, you. <laughs> and I'll never forget at one point, like, what did this guy's all about patterns and, and good programming sense and all that? And he was like, "Too much abstraction makes for bad code." And I was like, "This coming from this guy, really?" Right. And it's because it becomes very difficult to follow. Yeah, you're following all the best patterns and all the best practices out there, but it's impossible to read. And it's impossible to get from point A to point B. And, you know, elegant code, but is it poor? Right. But
0: let's, let's take the example of, though, let's assume that that's
1: not what the author meant. Right. right. I don't think that's what he meant.
0: And, and let's assume that you're actually looking at just some horrible, horrible code, right? And, and the point that he's trying to get at here, though, is that, you know, you weren't there at the time that that was developed. Right. You don't know the circumstances. You don't know the skill set of the person who was doing the development. You don't know the time pressure that the, the, the person was under when doing the development. You don't know the political pressures within the company of when that development was happening. So, you know, there's so many unknowns that for you to come in and be judgmental about it after the fact – you know, it's kinda
1: Yeah, don't throw yeah. stones.
0: Don't don't bother. Because you know what? Somebody else
1: is gonna have to come back to your code and do the same thing. Uh, I love it because both you and Joe, like if if I've ever had to inherit something you're working on, like the first okay. thing I'll hear is Look, I'm not proud of this. Yeah.
2: <laughs> like, here it is, and here are my uh, asterisks and conditions and caveats. Oh, dude, by the way. Here
0: are the set of tickets that I have set aside for myself to later
1: go back and refactor that. Look, man, I, I will be honest. I've never worked behind anybody like I have behind Joe. This dude will totally document all the pitfalls of everything that's, that's happened and be like, look, dude, here's the things to look out for. These are the things that I know exist, and this is the kind of stuff you have to be aware. Like, dude, he'll have an entire document of, all right, man. I know that I'm not working on this anymore, and, and I'm sorry that you have to. But, 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 <laughs> let me count the ways that I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Here's here's <laughs> my cliff notes of what you're gonna have, and it, dude, it's actually kind of amazing because it's a good reference. I think you even talked about this at some point as having like a handoff document, right? And, oh yeah, yeah. Oh uh, right. <laughs> it, it's been a while back, but. You know, again, to his point though, you really don't know.
2: You know, it, <laughs> we should do a talk on like neuroses and anxiety uh, as <laughs> pros of being a <laughs> programmer. Uh,
0: you 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 mentioned um, the abstraction, and uh, I think he also mentioned encapsulation. Those those were two things though that the author called out as like uh, two of the two of a programmer's best tools.
1: I thought that was an interesting uh, way well, to categorize those. Well, here's here's an interesting thing. So too much abstraction is just insanity. But one of the cool parts is, uh, especially programmers coming out of college, like you're not really taught interfaces properly. And we talked about this way back in our is for Interfaces thing. But I remember going to some conferences at one point, and security was one of the big talks. And they say, how do you make something secure that's not secure? You start abstracting things away by introducing interfaces, and that way you can plug things in that will make them more secure. So you can you can create classes that can kind of kind of hot swap out what was there. And so that is how abstraction can help out, and encapsulation as well. You know, you're not leaking global variables out, and you know you can start fixing problems slowly by by going through. So let's move on to one of my favorite topics here, <laughs> how to
0: use source code control.
2: By the way, Subversion version one came out in 2004. Oh, man. <laughs> man. <laughs> hey,
1: look, I used the heck out of some subversion. Anything yep. to get away from uh, Visual Source Save? Oh, yes. Yeah, I was all on board with. Man, I was a fan of visual source safe back in the day. I don't know why you're hating on it. I hated SourceSafe. I never liked SourceSafe, as a matter of fact. I'll never forget some places that I did work with, they were like checking all your code at the end of the day, whether it's working or not. And it was like, So that means when I go to check out tomorrow, this thing ain't gonna work. But they're like, But if you keep it checked out, then everybody's gonna be locked out from that file and it was like, Okay. Yeah, bro. that was the downside. Yeah, dude, I hated Source
0: Safe. It it, it definitely uh Fell on its on its face for large teams. But d- you know, for a for a beginner programmer, though, you really need to understand uh, how you know the ins and outs of source code control, and you don't have to get like too incredibly deep into the topic. But I mean, the basics of of the what value it's going to bring to you, and and how to use the tool, whatever your your uh, you know platform of choice may be for whatever team you're working with, but you know, you should be able to understand how to use it. That
1: that that is key. At least the basics, right? Like, I mean, get the basics down. Even if you're not going into cherry picking and whatever else is available, get the fundamentals. Please get the fundamentals. It will make your life easier and everybody else's as well. Yeah, I mean, he talks about
0: staying up to date. You know, staying current with with whatever the uh, you know master trunk is um, for your, your given repository. And, and that, that alone can help you, uh, you know, stay away from a lot of, of conflict type problems just from, you know, being out of date. Right. So just staying current can really help. But he had this other thought in there that I thought was really good that, that he says, uh, you know, in regards to source control systems that they encourage thinking about the code as a growing organic system. And I thought, well, that that's really great, especially in in today's world of, you know, Mercurial and, and Git where, you know, large distributed teams that are, are um, you know, working on this thing. And I, th- I think specifically we've referred to code as a, a living, breathing thing before too, right? Um, maybe back when we were doing... Uh, the first part of the twelve factor app you know so so i thought that was great and you know going back to the the points that joe keeps uh bringing up about how old this thing <laughs> is you know like this was a this was a while this was back in the days of of um you know visual source safe and and what was the rational one um oh shoot oh.
1: clear case no um uh, remember what there was rational rose what was it Rose was Not for proposed. doing uh, design. That was design, but it was by the same company, right?
0: Um, yeah, it was all rational. Uh, uh, I think it was clear case, wasn't it? I forget.
1: I i There I was VCS. Rhapsody? Was, I don't remember. Apex? No,
0: I don't remember. But, but my point being is that, like, you know, this was back in the days before Clearface. the large distributed uh, repositories exist, like, such as Git, for example, and... Uh, you know, but it was still you know encouraging, encouraging you to think about it as a, a growing organic thing, right?
2: Yeah, and don't forget to check out episode three for our uh, talk on source code etiquette, which really <laughs> dives into a lot of a uh, lot of things about distributed source control.
1: Was it really that far back, episode three?
2: Yep. Yeah, that we talked about source control etiquette. Wow. Yep. Yep. Oh, we've talked about a lot of the things that they talk about in this episode.
1: Yeah, we really have. Including yeah. unit testing. And, and it, it wasn't
0: clear case it because that was something else. I don't remember what the one what the rational tool
1: was for uh source control. So yes, yeah, unit test. You wanna step us into this one, Joe?
2: Yeah, so um I didn't uh read this part because I know everything about it already. Uh. <laughs> wow. I'm
0: not kidding. I mean, I don't know what else <laughs> to say about this. We we've talked about We've talked about the value of unit testing before um, you should definitely do it. Unit testing is awesome like there are times where especially i don't I don't know why I feel this way about compiled languages more so than others, but uh like there are definitely times where like I'll be working in some code and if I can't write unit tests for it, then I feel I, I don't feel complete like something doesn't feel right.
1: Well, it's not even typed. I mean, like even if you go JavaScript or something, you've got a bunch of
0: there are test runner, runners yeah, and yep.
1: that kind of stuff. Is, or test runners? There, you
0: mean? there are there are uh, testing frameworks out there for that. So I'm not trying to take that away. But my point though is that for me personally, right. for some reason, I guess you like dot cover is the problem. I think you're in love with dot cover. Well, I mean, I use dot cover, but I think I would say that I'm more. I would give that love more to in unit, in unit than okay. I would dot cover. Um, but, but yeah, just the ability to like, you know, see that it's that, yes, this is working. Yes, my confidence is high because look at all these different um, parameters that I'm, that I'm testing on. Like, you know, yeah, it, it builds really good confidence about it. So I, I don't know what else to say that could be said about unit testing. It also you know,
2: informs good design. It keeps your uh, cohesion and coupling down. It forces you to, and it forces you to abstract out your dependencies or else you're not really unit testing.
0: I will say uh, one of my, my favorite books on the topic is The Art of Unit Testing. And uh, it, it's the examples in the book are specifically uh, in .NET, but the, all of the concepts, all of the principles and everything that's discussed in that book, they apply to anything. Yeah. They, they're not just limited to .NET. Um, so I, I would highly recommend that book, The the Art of Unit Testing.
2: You know, uh, .com is a site by Roy Osharov, who wrote the book that we're talking about, and it actually has sections for Ruby, C Sharp, Java, and that's it. Yeah.
0: So uh, let's get into a topic that Alan should should uh, learn from Mr. <laughs> beginner. And well, this is take breaks when stumped. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a break on that one. That's not the one I was thinking of. I was thinking, I was skipping ahead to the next one. Sorry.
1: Yeah, but this one's probably a good one too. And this one's just take breaks when stumped.
0: It really does help. I can't. It It's such, it's so simple. I mean, like that's the beauty of this one is its simplicity, but yet it is so true. Like how many times have you been stumped on something and then you're like, "You know what? I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to go to lunch." You know, whatever whatever it might be. You you just you step away from the code for some period of time and when you come back to it, it's just you have this epiphany and you're like, "Oh. How did I not notice that before? There's here's how I should solve this or here's what the bug was or whatever it might be. Like it just you suddenly
1: see it. You know, th- he doesn't mention this, but I would also say, try not to code up until you're going to sleep. It, and <laughs> this this may sound really stupid, but your brain won't relax. Like if you're working on a problem that you don't solve, chances are you are not going to rest well. I, I mean, at least I don't. Like if I haven't gotten to what I considered to be a good goal, then I literally will stay awake all night dreaming about code and. And it's really frustrating, but, you know, I mean, even nowadays, sometimes I'll, I'll just have to, I'll have to go out and shoot a basketball, you know, to get away from a problem or, you know, go to lunch, do, do something to walk away from it because you, you're so tied into the problem that you can't, you can't,
2: you know, zoom out to 10,000 feet and look at it differently. And get lost in the weeds. Uh, I know that I'm in trouble when I start try, trying to prove that my language or framework is broken. It's like a <laughs> little mental switch that happens where suddenly I'm like, no, way, this isn't me. This is you. This is you and I'm going to prove it.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, in some cases, that is true. That's true.
2: Some some frameworks more than others. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs>
0: but that's right. funny. <laughs> so So it was bugging me. It was rational clear case. Oh, okay. But it had so many different features that revision control or version control was just one of the many, right? Uh, or at least back, you know, back at the time that this was created. All right, so here's the one that I was thinking of that uh, Alan should learn from: how to recognize when to go home or when to just turn it off and go to sleep. So, to your point about not working up, not not working all the way up until the point that you go to sleep, yeah, you definitely need to to give the brain a break actually to that point though i find that um i feel like i'm i'm more productive and and able to think more clearly in the mornings than in the late than late at night
1: Hmm. I, i think for me the late at night is more about less distractions you know in the mornings everybody's you know in the office or whatever the case may be and so there's more people hitting you up for things or whatever. Like the late night stuff usually is just simply I can focus, right? Like there's, there's very few distractions and that's probably the big thing for me. But yeah, I mean, what you're referring to is my late night the other night and that's just, you know, the framework. <laughs> there's yeah. a problem with a framework and it, 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 it you've done everything you can think of. And I don't know. No
0: way, man. I think you were just looking for an excuse to stay up till 3 a.m
1: but i will say this though this this chapter had some or not chapter this section had some really really great points in it like if you are working at a place that expects you or or almost kind of forces you into 60 hour work weeks or greater you need to really evaluate that right i mean don't get me wrong as developers there are going to be those times there's no question. You got some major deadline coming up, or or there's just a particularly challenging thing you're working on. It's going to happen, but if it becomes a norm, that's that's abnormal. That's unusual. It should not be like that. It's not healthy. Yeah, I, I like that. You know, he he makes the
0: point of saying that. You know, the sad fact is that uh, you know for the for pro- the programming culture, right. Um, it doesn't value mental and physical health very much, which is a crazy statement because like you kind of want to say, you can kind of make excuses for the, for the physical part because you're like, yeah, okay, fine. You're sitting behind a desk all day long. Like that one, I kind of get, but the mental health one you think, well, hold on. Like we're constantly studying new subjects, you know, better, better techniques and languages and, and you know, concepts like that doesn't make sense except it does when you consider that you know we don't give ourselves the rest that we should right and then the pressures and then um, i'm pretty sure it was here where in this section where he was talking about like um oh yeah it was this section um you know we were here he was talking about don't abuse caffeine right right like you know, I mean, obviously he goes. He he mentions some you know harder drugs too, um, you know that you should stay away from to to uh, combat fatigue. But but I, I liked the the one statement about you know don't abuse caffeine because you know how many times have you heard programmers talk about like you know their favorite caffeinated cola right like you know is it Mountain Dew is it Jolt is it Dr Pepper like those are the three big ones right and then and then that was even before like you know. Now you got drinks like Monster, Monster
2: and Red Bull and things like that, yeah. and it's like it's a badge of honor now. Like I drank six cups of coffee,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, and so so, but that's so true though, because in terms of like your mental health,
1: though, like that, it's not helping you. No, and I mean, it's, we've all worked long hours before. We, as a programmer, it's going to happen. But he also said if you get to a point of. Or if you notice a team member getting to a point to where they're depressed or or something All like right. that. There's I mean, he actually went into more psychological type things that you wouldn't really consider that much. But if you're if you're working under insanely high stress environments and crazy tight deadlines, you know, this stuff is real and it can be a problem. And that's where communication needs to kick in. But that's also where he says you need to know when to stop, know when to go home. And if it becomes too much of a regular thing, know when to go find another job,
2: right? Yep. although I must say that um, most of my working late usually has to do with f- um, failures in other areas like bad estimating or bad debugging skills.
1: That's true. Estimations play a key role in that. But bad debugging skills, I don't know, man. Come on.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it happens, you know. It's, uh, it's, it's hard. Programming is really, really hard.
1: It is, and I think a lot of people don't understand that. Getting into it, a lot of people really think it's a cakewalk. They hear, "Oh, you can make X amount of money just you know sitting in front of a computer. How hard can that be, right?" And, and I don't know. The, the it's statement. hard enough that
2: essays have to warn you not to take cocaine, <laughs> <laughs> not to abuse illegal drugs in order to get your job done. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> But but when you were t- speaking a
0: moment ago, Alan, with uh you know you know, knowing when to when to go home and everything, like at first for a moment there I thought you were about to say like, you know, and here's a quote from the from the great Kenny Rogers. Oh no, you've got to know when <laughs> to when to hold when them, to hold them. <laughs> and you've got to know when to fold them, and you've got to know when to walk away. And when to, oh, when
1: to run. Man, you got to sing this. <laughs> yeah. You got to catch Oh my
0: God. I was not trying to get that. All right. Oh, George so is coming out. George is coming out. That's a perfect segue into this next topic, which is how to deal with difficult people.
1: <laughs> Jeez. Oh, get used to it, man. All right. Hold on. Programmers are Mike. difficult. Hold on. We're going to meet Mike real quick. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. This, this, hey, look, out of all the sections, this is probably one of the most important and one of the absolute most difficult to deal with, period. Difficult dealing with difficult people. And that's, I mean, he hits a lot of topics in here. And the crazy part is, his his suggestion boiled down to try and stay calm and patient and hear them out. Yeah, I mean, he does make a great point.
0: You know, like, ultimately, you, you guys... You have to work together as a team, right? Like it's not going to happen by you know you're not going to be able to do it by yourself, right? And uh, you know these are people that you have to work with, so you you need to, um, you know, there's some boundaries there, but you need to be able to get along, right? Yeah. So so you know I liked that, and uh, you know, but he was also saying like you know don't don't let a bully you know someone bully you. Around either, though, right? Like, you should be I'm trying to say how to say this. Like, whatever your point is, right? Like, you should be strong and commit to that point, right? But, but if if the team decides commit. that that you lose, <laughs> right, then yeah, then move on, right? Like, accept what the team has
2: decided. And, you know, yeah, I'm doing a horrible job of that. Joe, your thoughts? Yeah, disagree and commit. What's one of the uh, Amazon's uh, leadership principles? Uh, basically, it's, it's kind of similar to what you're saying. You know, don't be a doormat. Be heard. Get your point across, especially if, you know, you believe it's the right thing. But, you know, you also, you're a team player and, you you know, it's a democracy or, you know, it's some sort of governmental organization and... Uh, You just kind of got to make your way. And a lot of times the, uh, the arguments that are the fiercest are the ones that um, the decision actually matters the least. You know, it's because they're both good ideas and uh, you know, that's just how it is. So yeah, you just got to be able to kind of roll with the punches and keep going.
1: One of the good points he made in here talking about that was difficult people might have good ideas too, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's, that's one of the challenging things is if you're working with somebody who never listens and is always talking if if that's the type of difficult person you're working with, it's easy to want to shut them down right it mm-hmm. and it sometimes it's difficult not to want to shut them down because you are so tired of not being able to get an ed, a word in you know edgewise or whatever the case may be, but if you close off your mind that way you may lose out on some good information. And here's the other thing, know if you are that person, try and be introspective of things that you do. Like I know in my earlier years, I was horrible about wanting to finish other people's sentences. And that was a character flaw that I knew about myself. Like somebody would be talking and I just want to jump in and finish it because I wanted to show how smart I was. Right. And, and a lot of people have that problem and it's something to be aware of if You know, maybe somebody talks to you about it. Really, sit back and think about it. Okay, how can I be a better communicator? How can I be easier to work with? What can I add to the team? You know, what can I take away from other people on the team? And you know, it's such a balancing act. So, yes, there are difficult people that you work with, but also be aware of of things that might make you difficult to work with. So it's really twofold, and it's not easy. (laughs) If you become a programmer, you are going to work with difficult people. Period. Especially because a lot of programmers, they're very, I mean, not all of them are the most social people in the world. They're not great at communicating. They like working on a computer for a reason, right? Like, that's that's their thing. And so you're going to run into, in this line of profession, probably a bigger variety of people than just about anywhere else. And, and as we've said before, it's an opinionated bunch. It is. Extremely. And it's because people that survive in this, they're, they're a smart bunch typically. And you know, <laughs> we all have strong feelings about certain things. So it, it can be challenging. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, that's going
0: to be it for this, uh, this first section of this, uh, this essay. And, uh, we'll have a bunch of links in the show notes for, uh, some of the resources we liked. We've mentioned, um, there've been several books that I've mentioned. We'll have the link to this particular book as well as, uh, you know, the art, we mentioned the RD unit testing. Um, there's other ones that, that this book endorses that, uh, you know, we also, uh, would agree with, you know, uh, code complete pragmatic programmer. All of those will be in the, in the show notes. Um, I don't know if there's any other ones that you guys want to specifically call out. Um,
3: Nah. But
0: otherwise,
1: then I think it's time we get into Alan's favorite section of the show. Yes. Tip of the week. The it's tip the, of tip of the, the tip of the week. week. Yeah. And I made mine a one-liner so that nobody would actually know what I was talking about. Oh, man, I was totally going to come in there and webstorm that. <laughs> so,
0: can can't believe he called me out on MS Show as stealing yep. his
1: webstorm. You totally did. Even It went to another show. Yes, that's right. It traveled with me. <laughs> I told you, man. You guys weren't showing me love at oh, all. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so my tip of the week actually has to do with my Kindle. And so I do not like reading articles and books and stuff on my computer. I really don't even like reading that kind of stuff on a tablet, although I will. My Kindle Paperwhite, is one of my favorite devices. And here's one of here's my tip. So if you find a PDF or, or a document or something that you want to be able to read and you want to be able to take it with you, download it to your Kindle, a way that you can do that is okay. So it's not a book on Amazon. You can actually email that file to yourself or to your Kindle account. So typically like if, if your Amazon account is ABC Uh, you know, at at gmail.com is your login, then typically your Kindle email account is abc at kindle.com. And so you can literally just email a document to that email address from an approved email address in your Amazon account settings, so probably whatever you logged in with, and it will ship it to your Kindle device. Now, here's the bigger tip on top of that. So this is a compound tip. (laughs) If you do... Just a PDF, and you send it. The thing that's really annoying is when it hits your Kindle, it's going to be like a a page that you zoom in and out of, just like you would see on a PDF reader on your computer. So you can zoom into 100% or whatever, but you can't scale the font. You can just zoom in on the entire page. If you put the word convert in the subject line when you email that PDF, Amazon will actually convert the thing into a Kindle book for your Kindle format so you can actually scale your font up and down and so you can actually have page tracking and all that and then you can take notes and and all that otherwise it comes across as an image that's that's not really What do you do about easy. images? So I think I don't know if this one had it in there. I've seen it do some wonky things with images uh, but for the most part it does convert it very well. Like this this is one that I did and I emailed the PDF and I put convert in the title and I've been able to take notes, highlight things, all kinds of stuff. It's absolutely beautiful. So if you huh. have a Kindle device and you do reading and you find something on the web interesting that you like, email it to yourself, put the word convert in there. But there's
0: no it. way after the fact? You just have to like cryptically know to do this yeah. Email.
1: Yes. And that's the thing that's kind of frustrating about it as I was looking at it. Because I first emailed it as a PDF and I was like, man, this is horrible. I can't even read it because it was so small Right on my Kindle. And I was like, okay. And then you'd zoom in and it would chop off half the paragraph on the right or the left, you know, wherever you'd zoom to. And so it was like, I can't read it like this. Right. And so I did some searching and sure enough, you just do convert. Now, the thing is, if it's a huge document, it might take a little while for it to make it to your Kindle but still extremely useful. Yeah. Nice tip. Yep. And, and for programmers, this is great because if you find a good reference, then you can take notes on your thing.
0: Well, that's why I was asking about the images because sometimes some of the books that I've read, they'll have like um, you know figures, for example, or tables or something like that to like illustrate some issue. And sometimes that might just be you know, straight
1: up like, here's a screenshot. I'll try and do one real quick. Let me find yeah. a PDF. All right. Well, while Story.
2: they're doing that, um, I'll go ahead with my tip of the week. Unless I should wait. No, 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 yeah, no. yeah, yeah. I'm go not ahead. waiting. Yeah, okay. please. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm we'll waiting. Or, yeah, yeah. I'm not that. making you wait. My bad. <laughs> uh, we'll update. Um, yeah, so uh, my tip of the week is stolen from at Ray Hammond. Thanks, Ray. He uh, sent me uh, a command. FGREP is it basically um, uh, it's a, a bash command for searching in files. It, it's um it's uh, basically, you know, quicker than doing a find, do do your, um, you know, file name type filters, and then piping that over to grep and searching for stuff. This lets you just kind of do things a little bit uh, easier with uh, some additional flags. But what I really like about it, and what kind of reminded me, is uh, how powerful your computer really is. You've you've got this tool here that, uh, you know, Windows, Mac, Linux, whatever, you've got great command line utilities that you can use to automate tasks. So, a lot of times uh, I'll find myself doing things that, um, you know, through the UI, double clicking, doing things basically the hard way, when a lot of times you can just type five little letters and get the information much faster. So, you know, you should uh, use your command line and uh, write some scripts and automate your life, yo.
0: Yeah, I mean, the specific example that he was talking about where there's like, where you do a find, you pipe that to crap. I, that is so just ingrained into my brain that like, if I'm, if I need to do something that that's often the way I'll do it. And when he mentioned this F I'm like, Oh wait, I, I didn't even realize that was an option.
2: Yep. So that, that was nice. an
0: awesome little thing. <clears throat> All right. So here's, here's uh the, the closure to the T's from earlier. Um, <clears throat> we We know that I like git right like we've we might have talked about that once or twice, and uh you know, as I mentioned earlier, I am rather meticulous about you know when it comes time to put a commit together, and I will you know review the code to uh make sure that you know what I'm about to you know, put in in, about to commit is actually what I want. So in other words, you know, did I leave, I want to make sure that I didn't accidentally leave any, um, console.log, uh, statements in there or any debug statements or, you know, leave any, any commented out code that I didn't intend to things like that. Right. All things that we've talked about in, in this episode. Right. And you know, for some environments, if you're working, uh, you know, if your preference is to use a visual tool, then you can quickly, um, you know, click on those files and, and view what the differences are. But if, like me, you prefer to work with the command line, then, uh, you know, you can just use git diff to be your friend, right? And so typically, you know, if you had some file, uh, let's just say it was foobar.txt, right? Then you could do git diff foobar.txt and git will show you all of the differences in the version that you have that hasn't yet been staged for a commit compared to um, what is uh, you know already staged or uh, already committed. So, so it'll show you those newly introduced changes. And I say the already staged part because if you do a git add on that file and then later make new changes, then get diff will show you those new changes since the last time you added it to be staged, right? Before you've committed it. But here's the here's the the cool one that that I wanted to mention is that that's fine and dandy if you want to go file by file and do that. Right. And sometimes you might you you know you might want to do it file by file, especially if there's a lot of changes in there. But let's say that like whatever your um path is you have multiple files that all have changes in it. You can just do, let's say that it's in the current directory. You've, let's say you got five files that have changed and they're all in the current directory that you're in. You could do, um, or even let's say that it was in a specific directory, right? Um, that the specific directory that you're in and files that have changed in another directory, you don't care to to look at just yet. You could do git diff period, for example, for the current directory, and git will show you the differences of all the files in that directory, right? Now, I I say that the, you know, git diff period, because you could also explicitly state whatever path you're interested in seeing. So you could just say git diff, and then, you know, a more verbose path, if that's what you're interested in. Or if you're not interested in any one path, but interested in all of them. So maybe you have, let's say, two files that have changed, but they're in, you know, each a separate directory, and maybe those are you know long path names, you could just do git diff and git will show you the changes of all the files, right? So it's a nice and handy way that if you want to review your changes before you commit them or before you even stage them, right? um you know you, you don't necessarily have to go line by line with your get diff command you could just uh spec you know specify a specific directory or not and and see all the changes
1: so i'm back and i just found a pdf that had some images in it and i did a convert and it looks pretty outstanding so here yeah, right. so the convert looks like it worked for uh, a story, a short story with oh images. Oh my god! It's been it. so
0: long since I've used one of these. I'm like, I'm like trying to pinch and zoom. I'm like, why is this not working?
1: So looking at this thing, it, in the... it's
0: like going into an epileptic seizure whenever I
1: yeah redrawing the screen and all that. Man, I love that Kindle. The Paperwhite, by the way, if you do want a Kindle, that thing is awesome because it has a backlight on it that you can read in the dark, in the day, whatever. Wait, this one had a backlight. Oh. Yeah, dude, turn the light off, you can read that thing in the dark. That is the only, so I never wanted a Kindle or a Nook or anything until they had that edge lighting. Because I was like, okay, this makes sense. Now I can read this thing, you know, sitting in a a dimly lit room or whatever. So it's fantastic. But yes, the Convert actually did the image conversion as well, and it looks really nice. But it won't let you, like, zoom in on the image, though. Uh, I don't think you can zoom in on anything on it so you can change the font size and all that, but that's, that's kind of what I was getting at when you convert something to the Kindle format. Really all you're getting is the ability to make your fonts larger and smaller and to have locations that you can go back and forth to. So I don't think. Well, in other could, formats
0: though, if there were images, you could tap zoom. the image and then that would bring the image up and then you could, and maybe I'm just, you know, cause I use the Kindle app on my phone. Yeah. I don't so know. maybe that's more what I'm thinking of. Yeah. But yeah you so maybe that's a smartphone or you know uh, ipad you know tablet or phone feature that they don't support on the actual kindle
1: yeah i don't think that cuz like
0: even if you tap on the image it
1: doesn't do anything yeah it's not about images our, i
0: don't know if that's part of it being a kindle device or if that's a part of the conversion
1: yeah i think that's part of the conversion it's literally Like, really what you get on the regular Kindle reader is just font sizes is pretty much what you deal with. But the images came over across well. Yeah, they they did. They looked really good. So that's kind of cool. So, yeah, that's that's my extended, long, well-drawn-out tip of the week.
2: (laughs) All right. (laughs) Very nice. Well, this week we uh, talked about the beginner segment of Robert L. Reed's book how to be a programmer. We've got a link to that in the show notes. And uh, we focused on the necessary personal and team skills you will need to survive in this industry. So hope you liked it.
0: Yep. And uh, as we said before, be sure if if you're listening to this because a friend loaned you uh, their device that had this on there, or they somehow hooked you up with this, or if you're listening to it on the web or you know, uh, some other outlet and you haven't already subscribed to us, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or more using your favorite podcast app. And, uh, you know, as Alan mentioned earlier, be sure to, to leave us a review on uh, those platforms too. We greatly appreciate it. And it goes a long way to help, uh, helping us be found by other people.
1: Yep, and visit us at www.codingblocks.net where you can find our show notes, our
2: examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, uh, rants, and Slack invite requests to comments at (laughs) codingblocks.net and uh, follow us on Twitter at codingblocks.